in the men's tennis, we are going through a golden age with the long sustained brilliance from the leading candidates like Federer, Nadal, Djokovic. And Nadal and Djokovic are vying for the majors race. And there's still hope that Roger Federer can come back and at least participate and keep his numbers going. Maybe not at slams, but maybe like career wins and maybe even sneak in a title. But how did we actually get here? You know, just like any sport or life, this profession has evolved. You know, uh, what Sampras was playing is definitely not the same sport that uh, Daniel Medvedev is playing. Or what Sampras was playing probably wasn't the same sport as Jimmy Connors was playing. So it always fascinated me as a fan of the game, as a student of the game, how did we actually get here? And these are like barstool conversations. Uh, these are like WhatsApp conversations. But today I'm decided, uh, I've decided to do a podcast with two of my very close friends and two of the regular guests uh, on this podcast to help me enlighten and you, the listeners, what the path has been on the men's stores evolution, what kind of tennis was being played. And for this, it's a vast conversation. I chose two decades somewhere in the 70s and all the way up till the year 8, 1989. How the game changed, what, who were the leading candidates, what were the narratives, and helping me put context around them is Hall of Famer Steve Flink and tennis coach and tennis analyst Murder Tunga. Welcome to the show, guys. Uh, thank you, Saqib. We're, we're, we're delighted to be with you. And I, I think I can speak for Mert in saying we are two of your biggest fans. Okay. I'll try to not wear the humble hat, but I do feel pedestrian, Steve, in your company and same for Mert. So I'll, this is the last time I'm being humble on this podcast, but the floor is yours. So let's kick this conversation. I enjoy every time, you know, the two of us get together and adding Mert to this is just like icing on the cake. We've been trying to do this for like a few months. Mert's on the road. And finally, he has taken time out on a busy night in Turkey uh, to match the time zones. And let's kick this conversation underway. So Steve, uh, 70s, you know, for me, it's about Connors here in 74, then the rise of Borg. So if you were to tell like a listener who really just has looked at uh, ATP stats on Wikipedia and ATPTour.com, what were 70s like to you? What were the leading narrative if someone is following tennis in the year 1976, just a random year? I mean, I think we had, it was a golden decade in so many ways, because you mentioned Connors, and I think he probably did more to raise the profile and popularity of tennis than, than any other player. It was not all positive. There were there were lewd gestures. There were the, 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 there were things Jimmy did that were objectionable. But he had this way of gripping the fans, of bringing them into the into the arenas. And whether they rooted for or against him, he was the, probably the most compelling and arresting player of them all. So he he had a five year run at number one in the world from seventy four through seventy eight. Meantime, Borg arrives, and 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 they had some classic duels, including as you mentioned, Saqib seventy six was a great Borg Connors U.S. Open final at Forest Hills, won by Connors in four sets. And then on and after these two had been sort of the preeminent players of the middle of the decade. And of course, computer rankings didn't start till 73 with the ATP releasing them in 73. Then we had McEnroe emerge in 77 with his Wimbledon semifinal appearance as an 18 year old qualifier, you know, and, and came out of the qualifying, went all this way to the semis. So really to think that these three guys and McEnroe would win his first major by 79. So to think of what they did in that decade to, uh, to, enhance the stature of the sport it, it's pretty remarkable I, and in the meantime not not to downgrade other players like Vitas Gariolaitis and there were some great players in the beginning of the decade and amidst it all Arthur Ashe winning Wimbledon in 75 might have been 
for many people, the highlight of the decade because it was such a monumental upset over Connors and Arthur had long last, not long away from his 32nd birthday, had captured the, the world's most important title to add that to his U.S. Open and Australian title. So all of these things were swirling in the air. And I want to now turn it over to Mert because I'm talking too much. No, Steve, absolutely not. But yes, I uh, just to add to what Steve has said, uh, you know, it, it, what what's nice about the 70s and what helped uh, tennis popularity boom is not only the main cast that he just mentioned, you know, Connors, Borg, McEnroe, but there was also a very good supporting cast around them. And, and, and geographically, it was well distributed. So, you know, you had, you had, for example, from Europe, you had, you know, aside from Bjorn Borg, you had a, a guy like Adriana Panatta with, with a lot of charisma, Italian guy, you had Yannick Noah, still young, but coming into his coming into his uh, his own in the early '80s. You had stars like Manuel Orantes, Andres Gimeno, you know Jan Kodesh. These these were these are all. Um, you know, Elena Stasi was a, was a, was perhaps a superstar, and uh, these these guys were were from Europe. And then you had a good nucleus from USA: Connors, okay, McEnroe, Arthur Ashe, Stan Smith, Vitas Gerolaitis, who who. Um, um, Steve mentioned was was what you would call a Hollywood rock star anywhere in the world. I mean, I I, I even heard Chris Lewis from New Zealand uh, speak about how Gerolaitis would would drive in in his convertible car in Paris Champs Elysees, and people would know who he was. So that's the kind of decade that we're talking about. Fashion uh, was uh, there there was there were some clothes designed after tennis players, you know, and and then you still had. You know, the, the, the Australian stars, Rod Laver, Ken Roswell, John Newcomb, the, they were in the early 70s, leaving the stage to, to the other people. And then, and then you had some other people from other parts of the world, like Vijay Amritrash from India, Ismail S. Shafi from Egypt. You know, the, 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 so it was, it, it was a sport that captured uh, globally everyone's attention. And this is where also, you know, tennis, was, tennis started being shown on TV a lot more i i spent a few years in switzerland in the late 70s and early 80s and we were watching i mean the, the tennis tournaments not just french open and wimbledon but Mil milan indoors monte carlo uh, barcelona tournament they were on tv and not just the finals either semi-finals finals and and we would you know people would make their schedules around them and people would dress like mcenroe or like borg to sometimes get together and watch matches. That's that's how popular it was in the late seventies. By the time, by the time it was all said and done, with the rivalries that uh, Steve just mentioned. Point. It's so true what what Murd is saying about that supporting cast and the supporting cast in their own way played a major role in the evolution of the sport. No no doubt about it. But I think it's the one of the important points Mert made was when the decade began, and this is even before the ATP was formed and before ATP rankings were released starting in 73, it was more of the old guard. John Newcomb was generally regarded as the best player in the world, the Australian winning Wimbledon in 70 and 71. So the first two years pretty much were his years. And Rosewall was won the U.S. Open at 35 and 70. And that was, he was still a great, great player. But Newcomb was generally regarded as the best. And then in 72 was Stan Smith winning Wimbledon. And he and Nastassi were 1-2 in the world. And, and, and that, was, that led the way. And then Nastassi, who you mentioned as a superstar, Mert, uh, I mean, he was number one ranked player in the world for 73, having won the French Open. So they all played their, their part. And I would say that Nastassi, in his own way, because he was so controversial and so mercurial, 
involved in so many controversies and thrown out of matches. And, you know, this is before point penalties and before that system was put into place and the Stasi was causing a, a lot of ruckus, you might say, in that period. But again, like Connors, he he brought people into the stadiums. He was compelling. And in his case, he was an artist more than Jimmy was a great, great player. But Nastasi was an artist. So all of these people were, were yeah. so crucial in, in the development of, 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 the pro, of, of tennis at the upper levels. So, Steve, you, you give... Yeah, sure. Go ahead, Mert. I'm, I'm sorry, Sakab. And, and, and I even forgot to mention, just to add to Steve's point, I mean, they, we had South American superstars too. Guillermo Villas was a, yeah. was, was a superstar. And Jose Luis Clerc was a good, was a very good Argentinian player who didn't get enough credit because of probably Villas. And, uh, oh, it's just, and, and, and also we had thrilling matches. And now I'm here. I, I know I'm entering Steve's territory here, so I won't say too much. But, you know, <laughs> Wimble, Wimbledon in the 70s had, I believe, out of 10 from 1970 to 1980, I believe eight, eight finals went to five sets. So you had these long thrillers that just increased viewership and increased uh, 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 stamina of, of, of tennis's uh, stability. And, and even the ones that didn't go five sets were matches like Arthur Ashe and Jimmy Connors that Steve mentioned that it, that was yeah. an event rather than a Wimbledon final. That was a, that was an event that was talked about for months. After that no, it was. it was because the, 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 just to try to add to what Murray is saying, it, it was he Ash was such a popular man worldwide and he transcended the sport in so many ways. And yet in some ways, Mert, I think he had not fully done himself justice as a player. He'd won that first U.S. Open in 68, but he was often a little distracted by larger causes. And he had so many outside pressures on him as the first black man to win a major title. And so Arthur had these pressures and these, and he was a, a citizen of the world and he really did care. So there were times when maybe he didn't apply himself as well as he could have. And he maintained a residence largely in the top five in the world. But aside from winning the Australian, which didn't have a strong field in 1970, he hadn't really backed up that U.S. Open. So to do it and beat Connors in the finals and that in the, the preeminent event in the world, I, I think that really that was earth shattering in the sports world. People, I remember Donald Dell telling me that, that he spoke to people, that one man pulled off the highway and, and, and drove onto the grass and started crying. You know, I mean, it had that kind of an impact on the sports public, not the tennis public, the sports public at large, because they understood who Arthur was and they understood how dominant Jimmy Connors had been. So I just wanted to throw that in. Sure. A lot of food for thought for me to go here, and I already have some questions planted in my mind, but I'll stick to what Steve said about the personalities and the rivalries, especially colorful people like Nastasi and throw in, you know, Connors, and we can bring in McIndoe towards the end of it, but the tour was not lacking personality. So, Steve, when you were in these interview rooms and following these guys and the kind of narrative which we see today, like Nick Kyrgios gets singled out because, you know, he definitely belongs to a different generation because he's playing for the masses He's just, you know, there as a delight to the crowd. He wants a full stadium. So what was it like covering these people? And what was the narrative if a young fan has to understand? What did Nastasi's presence or Connors or McEnroe, and throw some of the names, I might as well. What did it mean to cover the sport back then? Well, first of all, you felt fortunate to be a part of the sport back then because it wasn't, it was a diff slightly different kind of community. So in other words, the reporters like myself, I was working at World Tennis Magazine starting in 1974. I was hired by that publication 
that I'd grown up reading. And, and you would travel to the tournaments and you didn't, you, you knew the players, you knew the top players, Mert. So in other words, I would go down to a, say a, a tournament. And this gets back to your point about television. There was a tape for television events that keep called the world invitational. Four men, four women. So they'd get Arthur and Arthur and Bjorn Borg and Nastasi and Labor, and they'd get Christy and Martina and Yvonne Gulagang, Virginia Way, those fields like that. And I would go down there and I didn't I would interview anybody I wanted. I'd go up to them. In so, some cases I'd met these people, in some cases I had not met them, and I introduced myself and told them I was with World Tennis. You didn't go through agents. It wasn't a major production. It was a, it was a much more intimate tennis world back then as a reporter. So that your access to the players, although the press conferences were not as big a deal, they would do them, but they weren't really relied upon quite as much. Play, uh, reporters didn't quote quite as widely as they do now or, or put such emphasis on. They would do these, at, but not necessarily after every match, by the way. You weren't necessarily going to see Connors come in after every single match he played in. 1974, 75. And when we got down to the home stretch, yes. So what what I'm saying is it was a, it was for me as a young reporter, it was it was a great time to be involved and to get to know these players without going because by the 80s, the agents were coming in. The agents had arrived and it became much more complicated. You now had to go through the agent to get to the player. And that had never been excuse me, had never been the case when I first started. So then, then, you know, things were changing. It was becoming more of a big business, not so much the case in the seventies. So if you were to do, sorry, if you were to do a feature, like I've been to a few ATP tournaments, you request the ATP media desk and you, I mean, someone like me, I know I will not even get like a top 20 player, forget that. So I'll focus on, you know, a lower ranked player or a good story. But if you were there in your capacity back then and you wanted access with Connors or Borg, what was the protocol and what were the chances that you may get like a few minutes with these guys? Oh, good chance. Good chance. I mean, I, I mean, Borg, that, that, that event in Hilton Head that I attended, the tape for TV event. I remember, I'll never forget it. I, he won Wimbledon in 76. It was his first of five straight. I, I, I introduced myself to him. I said, you know, can we do an interview later? He said, sure. How about, how about 2.30? And I said, great. I'll meet you on the, on the press balcony deck. I got caught up, immersed in a match started watching the match. It's now 10 minutes to three. I'm 20 minutes late. I look over to the balcony and Borg is just sitting there waiting for me. Went over and apologized. I mean, again, I can't imagine this happening 20 years later that if you messed up like I did because I was too caught up in the matches. But my point is I set it up with Bjorn and it was no problem. I didn't go through his agent. I just went directly to him. I did that. It was a little bit different with Connors. He had a manager named Bill Reardon, so you tended to go through Bill. But even that was not complicated. Bill would, you know, it it was very simple. What time do you want to do it? I did one with Connors in the middle of the U.S. Open in 74. Uh, Right, you know, after he played his round of 16 match. I mean, it it was a simpler world back then. And and you talk about layers of players. I'm talking about the, the upper crust. They were reachable. They were accessible at that time in a way that they never were again. Because, so so because, were they accessible in the off-season as well, if you were to do a feature? Excuse me? If were it, they accessible it, during the off-season, if you were to yes, do a feature story yes, outside of tournaments? Yes, yes, absolutely. 
And I had, I, I'm thinking I did another Connors interview right in, after his final in Philadelphia when he beat McEnroe in 1980. It's an, another example that, you know, I just, the, and again, I just went up to him. He knew me by then and I didn't go through anybody. I set it up with him. I didn't go through a tournament, even a tournament representative. I just, and, and that was, I, and I was not an exception. There were many people like me from the British newspapers or American newspapers who, who did it the same way. So it was a less complicated environment than, than it is today, by, <laughs> to say the well, least. I, I bet it is. So, so there, Mark, I have a question for you, because while Steve was covering the sport professionally in that decade and having access to Connors and McEnroe, you were trying to be a tennis player somewhere in France, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. Who were your inspirations and whose style did you model your game around? Or who's the superstar that you could relate to as a young follower of the sport? Yes, Saki, if you ask that question to anybody who grew up around the same time as me, it would have to be either Connors or Borg. And if you're a couple of years later, maybe it was uh, Makara. But, uh, you know, Connors and Borg, you know, I I watched all their finals, semifinals from, you know, from 1976 all the way to 1981. And well, I wasn't the only one. Just about any practice that I went to at any club with all the juniors, everyone was wearing either Connor stuff. There were kids who were trying to play with T two thousand, not so successfully, but uh, they would try. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and I played with Adonai Borg Pro myself for for years, and uh, uh, that that's the racket. I still have pictures with it. So yes, Connors and Borg were right at the top of the line. And uh, you know the, the supporting cast, as far as inspiring, didn't get that much uh, support from from youngsters growing up, but. But they were a spectacle to watch, for sure. You know, I mean, I loved watching, for example, Vitas Gerolaitis. I loved watching him. That he's To this day, I would, I would argue that he's one of the fastest players, top five fastest players at the net. He was incredibly hard to pass. And, uh, but, but he wasn't, you know, I would, I would try to watch, I would try to imitate Borg and Connors. That's what, that's is, what, what I would the coverage try like in, Mert, What was the coverage like in France? Uh, showcasing the rivalry at its peak, like Connors or Borg, because you've lived it, you know, your later life in America and you see how tennis media is here. But what was the French-speaking press? How were they documenting the Connors-Borg evolution? And did you feel were, like a bias? You had to pick one? No, they were fascinated by it, though. No, you didn't, you didn't have to pick one. Uh, you, you know, Borg was from Sweden. Connors was from the United States. But Connors' popularity was, was outrageous by the time the late, late 70s came around. And uh, he, you know, I know he was a big star in 1974. That's his best year. And uh, he won three out of the four majors. He wasn't allowed to play the French. And one could make an argument that he would have won the French. He was a good clay court player. But his, in the late 70s, when they started playing, you know, these Wimbledon, the two finals at Wimbledon, the first one went five sets. The second one was a, was a blowout for, uh, for Borg. But then, uh, but then, you know, then, then Connors got him back at the U.S. Open. And uh, that that was big. But what I would like to underline is um, is and Steve will probably attest to this too, that in the United States later I found out that there was this impression that uh, that U.S. Open and Wimbledon were the two major events in the in the tennis world. That uh, that 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 it, that that player's success was defined by this. That was not the European point of view at all. That was uh, you know French Open, Roland Garros, and Wimbledon were it. Wimbledon was on top of the line, but Roland Garros was the second one. I mean, you had South Americans and Europeans just focused on playing Roland Garros and, and, and Wimbledon. And, uh, and U.S. Open came as a second, no, I don't want to say a second tier tournament f- for Europeans fans was less important. 
And because uh, I because I hear this narrative, which I, I disagree with, that uh, that French Open was not that as popular as U.S. Open and Wimbledon and people didn't play it as much, et cetera. And uh, that was not true at all for someone growing up in Europe. Roland Garros was it. I mean, that, that was a tournament that everybody waited for for months and months. And then once that was over, Wimbledon became the focus. Yeah, that, I, I, I think you're right. I think you're right, Mert. I, I would only say that I think um, uh, in terms of close followers of the game, there was never any doubt that Wimbledon and the Open, and, and in, in some ways it's never changed, even with the incredible stature of the French and Australian now that Wimbledon and the Open have always been, you know, sort of the twin pillars with Wimbledon number one and the Open number two. I, I hear you on the European point of view for sure. Although I think it was fascinating later that when Nadal finally won Wimbledon, he didn't hide the fact that to him, I mean, here was this guy who, of course, now has his 13 French Opens, but he was so thrilled at that first Wimbledon 08 because he knew it was the preeminent event in tennis, even as a Spaniard. Oh, yes. Oh, no, no, no I, 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 just, just, to, just, to, just to be clear, Wimbledon was yeah. the premier event for Europeans too. It's just the, 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 stat, the, the, the narrative that I've heard later is that uh, in the United States, French Open was always presented as the lesser tournament out of the three majors. I'm not going to go into Australian Open at the time because hardly right, any right. of the top players played it. But that was not the impression at all in Europe. That, you know, French Open, I mean, Wimbledon was one top event. French Open was next. And then came U.S. Open and the rest. And in fact, a tournament like Rome was, uh, was more... Um, what was more in uh, on the spotlight in Europe for for weeks than than say U.S. Open. U.S. Open was just this event far on the other side. Wow, United States, New York, tall buildings, etc. You know, back back then. But uh, for Europeans, I'm talking completely from uh, from yeah. the perspective that uh, that that we had that we had there. And I and I remember Borg in uh, either 1978 or 79. He was talking about the tournaments that he'd won. And and he's talking. He's trying to say, I want to win the U.S. Open. That's the one that's that's missing for me. And he mentioned, he said, I, I won Wimbledon. I won Davis Cup with Sweden. I won French Open. I won Rome. And now I would like to win, win U.S. Open. So Rome had this uh, very very uh, immense stature among the top players. One that one that they wanted to capture badly. Yeah. So- no, I just think the difference was that it was more in terms of how the media looked at it, how the, the tennis world largely looked at it. The, the, to me, the, the U.S. Open still had the stature right behind Wimbledon with, and Roland Garros was the third. But I get it that you're looking at it very much from the standpoint of those European players. And they and they felt that way. I will say that Borg, it was never certainly was never a question that he didn't want, as you just alluded to, that he didn't want that U.S. Open title badly. And, and sadly, really for badly, him, sadly for him, because he he should have had it in his collection. He ends up losing two finals to Connors and two finals to McEnroe. So he had four cracks at it. And and I, I, it's always saddened me that somebody as great as Borg didn't have that one, couldn't get that one on his resume, obviously conversely, you know, Sampras and others who have never been able to win the French, and it's, it's too bad for them. But Borg was so agonizingly close, especially when he played McEnroe in the 1980 final. And he took it into a fifth set, having been down two sets. And I thought he was going to win that title. But it, fascinating to, to think of the different philosophies of the players back then. And and and, and the other thing I'd add, Murtis, I think Borg alone what he did for Roland Garros is immeasurable. 
because of the run that he went on winning the six titles uh, he, and, 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 and showing how much it meant to him, treating it as, as almost, you know, a, a brother to Wimbledon. I, I think that, that really, the, the, that, that did so much to promote and propel that event in the 70s when they needed it so badly. So, Steve, let me ask you this. Actually, both of you, you can take a stab at this question first. And Murd, I want your views on the same question. I have an answer in mind, but I want to listen to what you guys think. So what is it that Nadal did to transcend Roland Garros to the American audience that Borg couldn't do? A, is because Borg didn't win uh, U.S. Open. B, during Nadal's time, there were not like many, or actually Andy Roddick phased out. There was no American men who were winning majors. So is it a combination of both factors? And C, did Borg have any success in America? Uh, outside of the majors. So what is the reason, if you have to pick one, why did Nadal transcend Roland Garros internationally, especially to an American audience with Bjorn Borg couldn't do in the 70s? Mert, why don't you, you go well, ahead and start? Yeah, well, for starters, Borg, uh, Borg was, he was a private person, mostly. And the U.S., just the, the setup of the U.S. Open, I think bothered him a little bit. And then the fact that he had to play uh, night matches and, and in this big stadium it, it was just it was not a good matchup for him uh, and he had to play against two in the four finals that steve mentioned he had to play against the two american superstars in in each of them and, and uh, you know connor's 1976 and then connor's 1978 and they're they're flamboyant personalities in McEnroe then in 1980 and 1981 and to be and to be honest, just like Steve said, the 1980 final, I thought he was going to win too in that fifth set. And there was a questionable lines call in the in the at three all, I believe, in the fifth. That uh, went three all in the fifth, correct? Yeah, That's that, that, right. that you know that what? Went, I just want to interrupt a second, Merton, and, and sorry to do this. No, no, That's no, it's okay. Such an important moment, Saki, because he's come back. Borg had lost a tie, served for the first set twice, and should have won the first set and lost in a tie break. Then pretty much tanked the second set. He was upset with himself. And the second set flew by for McEnroe. And then Bjorn dug in and, and won really hard-fought third and fourth sets. So there he is at three all in the fifth. And and he got a, he did get a questionable call on the baseline. He stood there staring at the linesman. Yes. And, he, and that was and, a... Go ahead. Yeah, he, he was angry. That was his way of showing real anger. But the, what, what looked retrospectively, I think it distracted him too much. And he ended up double-folding in that game. What another bad error. He pretty much gave the break to McEnroe, who then really uh, closed out the match very confidently with two more holes. You know, he held, he got his break for 4-3 and held twice from there to close it out 6-4 in the fifth. But that was a, an unfortunate moment for Bjorn. He was fully capable of completing the comeback. And of all things, Mert, for him to lose the match on, a, a close call that in, in other circumstances and other situations, he would have let it go and he would have got, gotten on with the job at hand. But I think it really perturbed him. And, yes. and I think it cost him the match. Yes. No, no, you're, uh, I would agree with you. And, uh, and for Borg to just stare at the referee for 30 seconds, that's the equivalent yeah. of any other player today, just screaming and going crazy oh, yeah. at the referee for, I mean, he, for him, because he was so neutral. I don't think uh, we've never seen someone like that before. I don't think, and I don't think we'll ever see someone like this again. His face was so neutral. He never showed negative emotions. He never showed positive emotions either. He was just this, this ice man. He, you know, McEnroe said about him, he had the, he had the best charisma without ever having a personality on the court. <laughs> He's I think right. That's a great, that's a great oh, quote. I, that's that, that, yeah. that fits Borg. And, and, his, and it was this, this ice look on his face that gave him all the charisma 
that he needed. And I think that carried over into the locker rooms because players back then, and I've, I've talked to players who used to play when he was playing, and they would say that they would be joking around in the locker room. And then when Borg would enter, everybody would turn quiet because he yeah, had this, yeah. oh, he was, he had this charisma. He was unshakable. He was imperturbable. And yet at that critical moment with the U.S. Open almost within his grasp, he, he lets the call bother him and, and ends up playing a very bad yeah. service game and, and, Steve, and also, losing. I, I, I don't know if you remember, there was also a serve that Mac in the first set tiebreaker, there was a serve that McEnroe served that, that looked out from TV that the referees didn't call and Bork kind of gave a stare to the yeah. lines person yeah. there too. So yeah. the, it had a carry, you know, this, this was like one, probably in his mind, you know, here, here I am playing another flamboyant American yeah. person, full stadium, nighttime, or, you know, under the lights. I, I'm just not, uh, you know, it, it, it was just not comfortable. And he probably played tricks in his mind. I mean, I'm just largely speculating here, but, no, but yeah, I, I think it's consistent. No, no, with, no. Uh, I don't think you're speculating. I think you're spot on now. And, and it was only reinforced by his coach, Leonard Berglund, who was a former great Swedish player himself. He used to try to argue with, not argue, try to lobby for, Bjorn not to be scheduled at night. He, 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 he got it in his head that it was bad for Bjorn. There was no reason he couldn't beat most of these players at night. I mean, a certain, it didn't help to play Roscoe Tanner under the lights in 79, who he'd beaten in a five-set Wimbledon final. Roscoe had one of the biggest serves in the game, a fearsome left-hander, and that was not ideal. But most people he played at night, it, it shouldn't have been a problem. But, you know, you're not speculating. No doubt that was part of the mindset and one of the things that kind of got in its way. And as far as that first set with McEnroe, yes, he he did get a little upset by that in the tiebreak, but he also was upset with himself for not having a couple of chances to serve that set out and not doing it. And that also was, that was very costly because imagine if he'd gone up a set there and, you know, these guys are such great front runners that and Bjorn would, would that could have lifted a big burden off his shoulders. He did go up a set in the 1981 final, but then yes. lost in the next yeah. three. Uh, three. But I would, I would also just one last note that I would give about that 1980 U.S. Open final. I think that 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 final gets underrated in terms of tennis quality because of the 1980 Wimbledon final that the two of them played, especially yeah. the, the the fourth set tiebreaker and that eight six uh, thrilling set in the fifth. And uh, but but I think overall from start to finish the U.S. Open final in terms of tennis quality was, in my opinion, slightly higher than the 1980 Wimbledon final. You yeah. probably, you may well be right. I would just, the only counter I would have to that is that the, the, the way that, that Wimbledon final unfolded, starting with, with, uh, with Bjorn serving for the match in the four set up double match point before the epic tie break, uh, that, that just made it soar to another level. You're Without right. a you, doubt. You looked at it from start to finish. I'd agree, with the exception of maybe the second set of that open final wasn't that great when Bjorn That's got true. a little bonnet. But you're right, and it was also hard courts, so maybe it was more conducive to, to to more interesting, intriguing points. But you could definitely make that case, and and uh, I, I it was it was a remarkably high quality. Yeah. But but the, the, in terms of drama, how could how could you beat that Wimbledon No, final? you cannot. No, no, I, yeah. I agree with you. In terms of its place yeah. in history and the drama, yeah. then the Wimbledon final takes the cake. There's no doubt about that. And 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 you touched on a very good detail there about the hard courts. You know, and, and at Wimbledon, what people forget is because there's this impression that Borg is a baseliner. But at Wimbledon, he started playing a lot of serve and volley. 
in the, sure in the later years and in the, in the 1980 final against Macro because it was on grass and let's not compare the grass in 1980 to the grass of Wimbledon today. Trust me, there's a big difference. But in that, on that grass, he was serving and volleying a lot. And at the yeah. US Open, at the US Open on hard courts, he didn't have to serve and volley. He could still stay back and show his skills in the base, uh, from the baseline. So you had this perfect uh, attacker versus counterpuncher effect. Uh, to to its full display in on on the U.S. Yeah. Open final. I think he could have done. I think he could have though, Mert. You're right. He didn't have to. It wasn't an imperative. But I think it might have helped him out a bit on the hard if he would have just selectively served and volleyed some there too, because he had a very underrated first serve. Yes, I thought really good first serve, and and he could have taken more advantage of it on the hard. And but you're so right about Wimbledon. What always amazed me, Mert, was how Connors would not give Borg credit for how he, how well Bjorn adapted to the grass and how he did yes. change. He wasn't playing remotely the way he did in Roland Garros only a few weeks earlier on the clay. He totally shifted. He totally changed the way he played. And that servant volley was a big part of it. Also, he would playing against Jimmy slice the backhand approach down the middle and come in behind that. And, 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 and Connors never would acknowledge this. He never acknowledged it. Even when he wrote his book, his autobiography, he still wouldn't. He, he, he appreciated Bjorn as a person, but never to this day do I think he's understood the greatness of the player and the adaptability of the player. Oh, that's brilliant. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm just lost as words here. There's so much being discussed. Con- uh, Connors, had, Connors had a bit of a problem with a lot of baseliners. And, you know, he said a few words about Lendl too later. He 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 did not yeah. he did not enjoy these players who just got everything back, just kept the ball deep and made oh, yeah. 10, 12, 14, 15 balls in a row. You know. Oh no, you're right, but it's just that Bjorn wasn't just getting it. He was that wasn't all he was doing on the lawns of Wimbledon. And, he would slice to Connors' forehand, and, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I wish that Jimmy would have said, you know, Bjorn ha- does change his game for grass. I give him credit. He comes in a lot more. He serves in volleys. He, 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 he presents me with different challenges, but Jimmy had that stubborn streak in him. Unlike Bjorn, by the way, who I thought was really quite generous toward both John and Jimmy in, in, in acknowledging how great they were and what they, what they did well. So, but, 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 yeah, what, what Borg did the three years, winning French Open followed by Wimbledon yeah, a few weeks yeah. later is, is to this day one of the greatest accomplishments because – in, in, in open tennis, in men's tennis, in my opinion, because that's, that's, there's a big difference between French Open clay and Wimbledon grass in 1980. It, oh, it's, yeah. It's, no, it's you're the right. Two, two ends of the stick, like two, uh, two extreme ends of one stick, and he was able to shift his game and adapt to, uh, to, to grass. Yes, and he had survived so many scares in the early rounds, you know, the, the BJ Armitages, Armitrages and the Mark Edmondsons and the Victor Amayas, these guys yes. that scared that's out of them. And Bjorn would survive those early round struggles and then start peaking at the end. And that, to me, I think that I think my favorite, though, of all his Wimbledons was the second, because that's when he won the, the, the classic five setter against Gary Elitis in the semis, followed by the match against Jimmy in the final where Connors came back from love four in the fifth, all the way to four all 15 love and double faults. And Bjorn never loses another point. He, he closed him out six, four in the fifth. That was pretty hard to do with the kind of momentum that Connors had built up, the charge that he'd made to get back into that fifth set. So winning those back-to-back five setters in 77 over Gary Elitis and Connors, it, 
It's my favorite, even though obviously the 81 will stand out because of the epic against Mackinac. I, I love 77. No, that's really good stuff. And I think uh, guys younger than me and even this generation, we understand how hard it is, but we just cannot fully appreciate the magnitude of how the sport was, the strings and the grass being grass and the two or three week window. I, I, I think I agree with both of you. That has to be one of the most incredible, if not the most incredible achievement in open era men's tennis. Yeah. So Mark, let's, wrap, a- let's, wrap, let's wrap this up. So just going back to the original question, do you think Nadal... Uh, transcended Roland Garros because of his rivalry with Federer, Federer on Wimbledon? Or you think uh, Borg's inability to win the US Open never gave French Open the respect in the American markets? I mean, uh, and there's no definite answer, but I just want your view and then Steve can weigh on this and then we can go back to who owned the 70s because that's the big question that's coming up next. Yeah. Go ahead, Mark. Uh, no, Bjorn Borg not winning the US Open is definitely a dent. Uh, in in his career i'm not sure how much that affected french opens view in america or us opens view in the in in europe but uh, but i would argue that uh, nadal nadal's ability to shift his game and to add to his game and to modify his game to get more aggressive with his serve to get more aggressive with the, with with his forehand and to start using his underrated volleys at first you know Nadal's un, volleys were underrated at first when he first began his career he's got great touch at the net and, uh, and and he started combining and putting all that into a package and that's how Nadal became great on all surfaces and and uh, the, I, but I would not say I, w- I would say the same for Borg you know the fact that he didn't win the US Open doesn't take away the fact that he uh, he he also uh, uh, improved his game over the years, and he won. A, he won a ton of uh, matches on hard courts too. So he was not, uh, you know, he he was not a weak player on any one surface. But I understand that in him not winning the U.S. Open gives that impression. Though he did lose the, the to to Connors on clay too in 1976 on on yeah. uh, American clay, hard true. Yeah, so, that was but, that was but, the match. I think you're right. Yeah, that was the, but that was. No, but uh, but he but, had the, he had a phenomenal career on 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 all surfaces. Borg did the the way that did. Nadal does now. You no, know? no, they, they both do. But, but just just a quick point to to uh, to what Mert was saying. Yes, I I think Mert's analysis of Nadal is excellent. I couldn't agree more because Rafa was always underrated as a volleyer. It only became better as his career wore on, and and he and he has that feel at the net. He has that touch. And that incredibly underrated overhead. So to me, I think Nadal was maybe better equipped, Mert, to 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 sort of show off those skills on on hard courts at the open and find ways to win. For Bjorn, it was never easy, and I think the grass helped him some. I remember Roscoe Tanner telling me he didn't think Borg was a great volleyer. He just thought he was cagey up there, and he would dump the volley the dump the volley into awkward spots in midcourt, you know, and keep it low and. And, On his forehand but, volley, especially, he would he would do yeah. a lot of these touch volleys. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But Rafa, I mean, Rafa has incredible feel up there and and excellent technique. His backhand volley is just a beauty, and and his forehand volleys improved. So I feel like in the end, he was even more flexible than than Bjorn. That that Bjorn uh, tactically, you couldn't question him that, that ability to go in behind the slice backhand on the center court and and thwart Jimmy with that, and then to serve in volley, but he'd make the volley routine a lot of the time. I think that helped him was that he'd open the court up with the wide serve and the deuce court and then punch the volley away. He didn't necessarily have to be a great volleyer at Wimbledon. He just needed to be 
a good one who got up there at all the right times. Rafa, I just think is far, I guess what I'm saying is I feel Rafa is far superior at the net to what, to anything we ever saw from Bjorn. And that's no knock on Bjorn. No, no, that's correct. That's correct. Rafa, yeah. Rafa's net, uh, coverage of the net uh, outweighs Bjorn's uh, coverage at the net for sure. And they were both. Uh, Mert, non- one, one quick thing, Mert, one quick yes. question for you. You mentioned about Vetus, Garyolitis and the speed. Up at the net, and I could, and no doubt about it, lightning reflexes and unbelievably hard to pass. But I also thought he was incredibly quick around the baseline too. I oh, just no, thought his sure. overall phenomenal. And yes, if only he'd, if only he'd had a slightly better backhand, Mert. I often think back to that. If only he'd been able. Did, to did come he over. ever come over the ball on the backhand? No. Side? I don't. <laughs> I don't no, he didn't. I, I wish he'd learned it. Because it, with a little bit better passing shots, uh, that could have made a big difference to him playing against Connors, especially, and McEnroe. And he did a little better against McEnroe than Connors. But I, I, I say, um, I, I share your, I share your joy in having watched him play, though, because he was really a pleasure to to watch on on any surface. But also, I like your point about Borg, by the way on the hard course that has to be said you know he did very well in things like the alan king classic and canadian open and other exactly it you know what's the key but it wasn't that he couldn't win on hard courts but i think part of this was that he it got in his head after a while coming back the pressure trying to pull off that open and then when the last one got away the one that mert referred to because it's true i was mentioning that if he could have won the first set of the 80 final could have made a big difference and i think that year it might have but the next year he wins the first set and then you know, that McEn- Borg went up 4-2 in the third, and McEnroe ended up playing this magical game with a couple of topspin lob winners, and that's he right. just kind of demoralized Bjorn and turned the whole thing around in one and four. And that's when Borg left the presentation ceremony and just got out of there, didn't do the press conference. He was so upset, and that's what led eventually to him leaving the game and all his disputes with the authorities over committing to tournaments. And we never saw him play a major after that. And I just think all of this was the weight on his psyche of, you know, he want, he really wanted that title. Now, and I just want to add one other point. I don't think in the end it mattered that much, uh, Sakib, that he didn't win the Open in terms of what he did to elevate the prestige of Roland Garros. I, I, I think it would have been nice icing on the cake, but I still think he did so much to enhance uh, Roland Garros and make it more and more important in the public mind and then the the U.S. viewers would see it on NBC but it became I just think he had so much to do with with that that the 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 the, oh, the bad luck at the open couldn't diminish it very much in my mind yeah Bjorn Borg was a phenomenal athlete I mean he's, he's he was the, he, he he had a resting rate of 35 and heart rate of 35 <laughs> and he was and they would do back then they would do these events with the best athletes in the world, you know, doing mixed events. And uh, he would come out on top on, on, on many of them. And, uh, and also he was a phenomenal athlete in terms of mental toughness. I, I don't think he ever lost a match from two sets up. He has a, he, I, I don't know what the exact record is, but I think he's something like the 35 setters maybe that he played in his career. Yeah. And he never lost a match from two sets up. He, he, no, he, yeah, so he was a, you know, he, he was, so who who did the decade belong to, right? Uh, so Steve, let me ask you this first: Was the fascination with majors as big back then, or was the tour more evenly spread out? If uh, you know someone is having a great year, he could have won just Wimbledon and still won seven other titles. So how was that importance attached to the sport? And who did the seventies belong to? If you have to pick, 
Is it boring? Well, that, yeah, that's a great question. It, it was more spread out uh, yeah, because for all that we're talking about here in Borg and what he did to help Roland Garros, it was still growing in the public imagination and mind. The Australian had some, was suffering in that period. The, the fields were not great. Mark Edmondson won it one year in the 70s. It was not a, they had some very meager fields. So at that time, you had tournaments like the WCT finals in Dallas, and you certainly had the Masters at the end of the year. And those events, they meant a lot. Uh, they were they were really highly regarded by the players and what they put into them. So it was a little bit different in that it, Wimbledon and the Open were towering and the French, you know, were, as Mert was pointing out, it was becoming more and more important, particularly European players and Americans were beginning to understand it. But the Australian, it, it, but the Australian was not it was a very tough era for the Australian. I don't think until they finally got to 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 the hard courts in 88 did they really finally make their move permanently as a first class as an event where all the top players would be there every year there were some tough times for them in the 70s and 80s so you have to have that as background so then you say uh, and i'm fascinated to see what mert's going to say following me on this but you, you look at that deck and you say okay so who was the player of the decade borg wins the last four wimbledons of the decade uh, Connors won the U.S. Open on three different surfaces and was number one in the world five straight years, although I would argue that a couple of those years, he didn't, the ATP in those days wouldn't put as much weight on the slams. So uh, Jimmy was able to be number one in 75 without winning a Grand Slam tournament. Same thing happened in 77 when he didn't win a major. And in those two years combined, he lost five Grand Slam finals. Now, he, so he got a lot of points for being in the finals, but he didn't win them. Lost three finals in 75, Australia, Wimbledon, and U.S., and then he lost Wimbledon in the U.S. in 77. And yet both years, he finished number one. Nonetheless, officially, he was the number one player for those five years in a row. And he, he had a great record, and he's the only player in history to win the U.S. Open on three different surfaces, which was a great accomplishment. 74 on the grass over Rosewall, 76 over Borg at Forest Hills, as we discussed. And then he goes and wins the first on the uh, first of his hardcore opens in 78. So that completed this, the three surface cycle. So I think it's a, you know, McEnroe accomplished more in the 80s. He got started in the 70s winning the U.S. Open in 79, but he wouldn't really be in the discussion. Yeah, he wouldn't be. Me, the discussion is Borg and Connors. And, you know, historically, I think we all rate Borg higher than Connors. I don't know many authorities that wouldn't say that based on the, his overall record and winning five straight Wimbledons and six French. And despite Jimmy's great U.S. Open record, you know, you, I, I think most of us regard put, would put Borg up there. But it's an interesting debate debate to look at what they each accomplished in the 70s and who, who, would, who would ultimately wear the label of player of the decade. So take it and run, Murr. No, I, I I would I would go with Borg without without a doubt. But then again, once again, I, I have to point this out. It's um, this is a great conversation because Steve is um, it, you know mostly talking from an American perspective. Although he's very he's very uh, obviously Steve knows Steve. You know global tennis better than anybody, including me. Uh, but the but for example, you the way Borg made French Open popular in the United States, Connors and Macaron made U.S. Open popular yep. in Europe. Not many people in Europe, you know, for, for, for Europeans, it was 
French Open. I mean, Wimbledon top and French Open. But but the summer, the the big the big season of of tennis consisted of uh, you know French Open and Wimbledon. And I'm saying it in that order because French Open came first in the calendar year, not because you know Wimbledon was always tops. But the U.S. Open was was at 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 times you know some some other tournament on the other side of the world that's huge, but it's not our priority. That was the that was the viewpoint in the in in Europe. And and I understand completely that in the United States it was different, U.S. Open yeah, and, and Wimbledon. But but that but in Europe that that was uh, that was the way it is. So Connors and McEnroe actually are the ones that uh, that really brought the house down in terms of the of, of what, how important U.S. Open was, especially McEnroe beating Borg twice in 1980 and 1981 were were big, very very big. But but as who did the decade belong to? For me, there's no doubt in my mind that that it was Borg. I, I've, 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 I have dozens of friends from my junior years who, who, who just a- imitated Borg in every possible way. And, and everywhere that I used to travel, you know, w- with my rackets and stuff, oh, are you the next Borg? Are you the next Borg? I never got asked, are you the next Connors? Are you the next McEnroe? Uh, for some reason, I always got asked, are you, ne- are you the next Borg? But then again, I was mostly traveling in Europe, so as a junior, so yeah. No, I think it, I, I listen. I don't disagree with you. I, I I believe that you have you give it to Borg in the end, but I think that that Connors is in the conversation because of the immense the and and what he what he did at the Open was a phenomenal accomplishment, and the five years at number one, even though a few of them are disputable, is a is a towering achievement. So. But they, they certainly were the central figures, to be sure. And I, you know, I, I think that uh, that's an interesting point you're making about Connors and Mackin on the open. I would only say the, 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 the people like Lance Tingamer, uh, the London Daily Telegraph, who yes. did annual world rankings, was highly regarded. Someone I started corresponding with as a kid. And, and Arino Tomasi in Italy. And some of the French authorities. I, I, all I'm saying is if you ask them they would still have said that the U.S. was the second most important tournament after Wimbledon uh, in, in their estimation as, as authorities. But your, your, your point is, is a different one, which is the, the, you know, the players and how they regarded it, which is why I was so happy that when Nadal, I was really glad to see Nadal embrace Wimbledon the, to the degree that he did and also so that show so much joy when he finally got the U.S. Open in 2010. And who would have thought, by the way, that he'd have four of them you know, after the way he started yeah. it off the tournament, right? But uh, yeah, it, it just shows you, Sagib, how much things things have changed. How much things have changed. This is it's kind of crystallizing it and clarifying it for me. Just having this discussion now, looking back on that era and trying to put it all in perspective. No, and it's and good because to, major- to have contrasting views, as you both have said, because we can look at the same instance, same match with the different vantage points and different narratives from where you lived in that time. And, you know, me being an Indian, you know, we got a lot of BBC feed. And before I start, uh, I started uh, getting into tennis. My father was watching tennis and we only used to get Wimbledon finals. And then he used to read a lot through newspapers and BBC radio. And he said what Mert said, Beyond Borg was this mythical figure. Everybody yeah. wanted to know about him because he was the one who transcended a sport in India. And of course, Connors McIndoe have their own fans and they added, you know, a huge chapter in the 80s. But my dad remembers listening about Borg and radio and on small news episodes on TV and just watching few Wimbledon finals. So he followed it very differently. 
unlike what you know I grew up in mid 80s getting Wimbledon and US Open live every year from 87 onwards. So yeah, Mert, sorry, I interrupted you. You were going to say something. No, I, I was just going to tell you a little story in, uh, about Borg. In 1981, he lost in the finals, uh, in that, that final where he won the first set and, and Macron won the next three. Steve talked about it and he left. And one week later, he came to Geneva to play the Martini Open, a clay court tournament. Uh, and that was the last title he won. He won that tournament, beating Tomas Schmidt uh, of Czechoslovakia in the finals. And that was his last title uh, ever as a professional player. But I was at that tournament. And uh, that's the club that I was practicing at, actually, that where, the, where the Geneva tournament is still played today. That's the club I was practicing at. And, uh, and I remember Borg came and there was this big, just, just, just this, this talk around the club. Well, Borg is arriving today, tomorrow, when is he coming? And, and, and more and more people just wanted to know about it. And I, because I was at, I was a, practicing at that club i had access to the different parts of the club and they closed some of the practice courts and borg arrived and and nobody knew and i saw borg walking with uh with another swedish player to practice and on one of the back courts and i remember going and i had i was right by the fence watching borg practice which is uh, uh, i can't even begin to tell you the the you know the the wow factor when you're when you're watching a legend that close and i remember one other junior from far away from who was younger than me uh i was uh, i was in my late years as a junior and uh and he and and he looked at me from afar and he said is that borg you know he pointed and i said yeah yeah it's him and the next thing i know is he tells his mom and dad who are eating at the clubhouse and i swear to you guys i'm not exaggerating this i see 25 adults running towards the you know 25 or 30 adults running to the court to just watch borg practice i see flip-flops flying that's how hard they were running running. And, and I just stuck myself to that small part of the fence. Cause I didn't want to be pushed by them and, and get thrown in the, in the back. And, and in a matter of 10 seconds, 30 people grew to hundred. And they were like, just, I was just surrounded by, by, by a big crowd all because people wanted to see this guy Borg practice. And then few photographers came running about 10 minutes later, they walked into the court and Borg said immediately, no, 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 not during practice please, uh, please leave. They wanted to set up their tripod and take a picture in the court. And he said, not during practice, please leave. And he was very serious in his practice. He practiced the same way that Nadal practices today. Uh, yeah, absolutely. No, listen, just to be, I just wanted to clarify what I meant about that story when I encountered him that first interview, just to make it clear to the listeners. But here I am in 76, Mert, showing up late, 20 minutes late, caught up. And you can imagine me watching matches and forgetting yeah. that I haven't but I, I, I run over to Bjorn and apologize immediately for being so late. And, and he says, no, no problem. No problem. And we sat and talked. Now, he was a tough guy to interview, uh, Saqib, because he, he didn't always, he, he wasn't the most expressive or articulate. Uh, he was very sincere and a nice guy. You couldn't necessarily get the kinds of things you could get from Connors and Macano or Vilas or so many other players, but but I, I was, I think that moment, I, 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 I've thought about that moment so many times. And that, uh, to me, that really was, that was Borg. That was the essence of Borg. He's just a very decent guy and, and self-effacing. And I don't know any other top player that would have handled a moment like that as well as him or handled situations like what Mert just described, you know, in the public domain as, as well as him. And also he united the likes of, Gary Elitis, 
Connors and McEnroe, who all were there at his funeral, a couple of them pallbearers, uh, because, and here were Connors and McEnroe who couldn't stand each other, but the one thing they had in common was Bjorn Borg. Yes, didn't, uh, the, Steve, didn't Bjorn Borg have a, have a place in Long Island, very, really close to, to one that McEnroe had? I think he did. For practice, yeah. something like that, yeah. Yeah, I think he did. Sure. And, and he would practice a lot with Gary Lytus out there, too. They had famous practice sessions, the two of them. And yes. Vetus will probably claim that he beat him many times, and he would have claimed that he beat him many times. In- <laughs> that that would be the only time he beat him. He was only seventeen yeah, against ever, him. Yeah. Ever in the tour, which is why, of course, Mert will know this. Will know this, Aki. But the famous story being that J- Jimmy Connors and in his rivalry with Vetus, he lost to him indoors in New York at the end of 72. And then not again until the masters many years later than the 80 masters. And, and uh, they, the famous moment yep. was when Vita finally beat him again, you know, and they said, Vitas, that was going to be 17. You've never, you never, you hadn't beaten him the last 16 times. How do you, he says, nobody beats me 17 times in a row. And I was in the room when he said it and, and the, the room erupted. But people confuse that story because it's it, it's so similar in that Vita's being dominated by Connors, who he at least had had the one win against at that stage. But with Borg, he never beat him. He never beat him, which is why I wish it, it, to take nothing away from Bjorn. I wish Vita could have had that looking retrospectively. I wish he could have won that 77 Wimbledon semifinal because, you know, that was early enough in the rivalry. It could have actually made a difference later on. I think that might have been one of their pivotal matches in the sense that he was rarely going to get a better opportunity than being up a break and three, two in the fifth set and not quite able to close Bjorn out. And speaking of uh, Gerolitis Borg rivalry, the 17 and 0 rivalry in the, in the 1980 uh, French open when they played in the finals. Uh, and I heard this story from, um, from, no, was it 1979? I'm sorry. When, when Borg played Gerolitis in 1980. Yeah, when when Borg played Gerolitis in the French Open final, and uh, they, the, I heard from a couple of different players who who were in the top 100 then that uh, when when they ended in the locker rooms or in the back players lounge, they were taking bets with each other about whether Gerolitis could win seven games or not, or more or less from Borg, and and it turns out that he wins exactly seven games <laughs> six four six one six two. Yeah. You know, yeah. and the, that, that was the final score. So that's another, that's how one-sided that uh, rivalry was, Borgia and Gerolitis. No, Other than yeah. their, you know, their great, fi- their great match that Steve's talking about in 1977. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, that the Vetus, as good as he was on clay, and he had beaten Connors to get to that final, he was not going to beat Bjorn on clay. That, that was not where he wanted to play him. If he was going to have a shot, it was going to be indoors or on the grass or fast, hard court, maybe. <laughs> These are incredible anecdotes, and I'm uh, just, you know, amazed by the recollections you both have. So, Steve, let me ask you one question that we were talking about before we started recording. A lot of young fans know Jimmy Connors' magical run at the Open in 91, and he was a very popular figure as far as I remember. But I also have read that he never had that. It was never always a love affair with the New York crowd. So he made a very important speech, I think, in one of those U.S. Open finals. So just talk about that. What triggered that and what had led up to that point? Why was he not popular? Just educate us, you know, like what was the relation with his own country's crowd, you know, at the U.S. Open? 
Yeah, it was partially the problem was partially in his own country and but also the way he was perceived around the world. Jimmy, you know, there were some lewd gestures at times. He did things that he didn't always behave that well. He was a bit defiant, more than a bit defiant at times, which is part of the reason, part of his greatness as well. But Jimmy came along on the heels of an American tennis keep of, of players like Arthur Ashe and Stan Smith, models of decorum. And he was this young, rambunctious kid, you know, it, it, wagging his middle finger and doing things that they wouldn't have dreamed of doing. So that turned some people off. Then there was a then there were other segments that, you know, some of the youth really admired him. They, they liked that side of him. But it, it, he, he, the other part was he wasn't popular with the other players because he didn't join the ATP and he was firing off law. You know, Mert alluded to the 74 French Open and uh, that could have, Jimmy might have been able to win a Grand Slam that year because he won the other three and we'll never know. But uh, part of the, he was kept out of that because of team tennis. But then he and his manager were always, he was playing team tennis that year, but they were suing they sued Arthur Ashe. There were all lawsuits flying left and right against his fellow players and someone as popular as Ashe. And Donald Dell was Arthur's um, um, uh, manager. And it's very complicated to discuss what each of those lawsuits entailed. But there was part of the of what made Jimmy unpopular was that he was not one of the guys and not popular among them. And then the, there were the public didn't like some of the gestures and some of the lewdness and they loved the competitiveness. They loved the ferocity of the competitor. The purity of his game was beautiful to watch. So it was complicated. But as a result, those years, I mean, when he's, for instance, when he's beating Ken Rosewall, 6-1, 6-love, 6-1 in the U.S. Open final after beating him in 1-1-4 in the Wimbledon final, the, you know, the crowd was appreciative, but they were sort of saddened. Rosewall was an old, familiar figure, this elegant Australian who they'd known for so long, who at this point is 39. And, they hated to see him humiliated like that. And, and, uh, and, and then even when Jimmy played the challenge matches, Mert, in 75, the famous winner-take-all matches that weren't winner-take-all, as it turned out, against Rod Laver and, and John Newcomb, the crowd was very divided. And many of them really got behind Laver, especially when he played Jimmy. And Connors, in some ways, thrived off of that. You know, I remember Sandy Mayer, uh, Mert, the, the, uh, the American, saying to yes. Bill one stage how long will jimmy be able to win on hate because they wow. he built back <laughs> you know he he developed it i don't know how deep the hatred went but he was resentful of the fact that he wasn't well liked and that he was now the maverick and the outlaw but he fed off of that too and it made him maybe even that much tougher a competitor so all of this was going on prior to the 78 final that mert just alluded to a while back at the u.s open and Jimmy at that point had already won on the grass at 74 at Forest Hills and uh, and then on the clay and the heart at Forest Hills again in 76. Now they're at Flushing Meadows. And interestingly enough, you're leaving this private club. Some would call it stuffy. I would not. But it was certainly a an old school kind of club uh, at Forest Hills, the West Side Tennis Club, uh, leaving a private club for a public facility in Flushing Meadows, which was more Jimmy's kind of terrain. So maybe it wasn't accidental that they were now at Flushing Meadows for the first year on the hard courts there. And, and, and he just developed things unfolded in that tournament. He beat Adriano Panato, who again, Mert mentioned earlier, the charismatic Italian from three, five down in the fifth and hit a famous shot in that match around the net post. It was one of the more 
dazzling moments of his career that helped save him. And a one-handed backhand down the line pass and, and just jump for joy when he made it. And Jimmy then, and the crowd got very excited that day. And that was also sort of the evolution of his fist pumping. He had never done it much. We'd done a little bit of it before then, but in the Panada match, he really brought it out and the crowd loved it. They loved the kind of the energy and passion that he was bringing to the proceedings. And that was not like the vulgarity. This was just a, you know, a, a great player uh, uh, enjoying the, the, competing under these kind of circumstances with so much on the line. And then he took off after the Panada match and went into the finals, blitzing past Brian Gottfried and, John and the young John McEnroe and then beat Borg in the final who had a, a little bit of a problem with his thumb but, but there was just something about that climb that he made and people were aware that Bjorn was had been beating him at Wimbledon the, the previous two years so now Jimmy there, there was a sense of sentiment behind him that he maybe had never enjoyed before at his country's championships and that's why he made the remark about I don't know if you like me but I sure like you and you know and that in, that endeared him that was a very I don't know if he'd really heard how much he thought about that comment before or how much he said to himself, if I win this tournament, I'm going to say that. But it was something that went across really well. And then by then, Saqib, keep in mind that McEnroe had emerged and McEnroe was now, had now surpassed Jimmy as the bad boy of tennis. So in a way, Jimmy was now more of an elder statesman, despite the fact that he retained traces of the old, the younger Jimmy were still there they were embracing him more because in some ways the same people that had disliked him for his, some of his behavior disliked McEnroe more. So all of this was going on at, at that point. Thanks for sharing this. No, the, the couple of, just to touch, ba- touch back on a couple of things that um, Steve said, you know, he, he, he mentioned uh, the other players didn't like, uh, didn't like Connors and Steve, that, that was great to listen to, by the way, all the anecdotes that you just gave and all the, all the, um, all the little stories. And, and it's true. The, 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 the other players didn't quite like him because Connors gave this impression that he didn't care about anybody else other than just the top players. So, and, and, and when I, when I, when I say he didn't care, it doesn't mean he didn't like them, but what, but what it is, is he just didn't, he just didn't follow them. He didn't care. He didn't know who they were. He didn't say hello to them. That's the, you know, these are the stories that I heard. And, and I talked to Derek Tarr, who was a South African player nationalized yeah, yeah. in, in, in American. He was a, he's a great friend of mine for 30 years. And, and he was the guy, by the way, Derek Tarr was the guy who was ranked number 100 in the world when Vitas Gerolaitis made that famous comment about yes, number right. 100. And, right. and, and, uh, and, and he was the 100 guy in the world and he came home to his home only to find out that there was this big ruckus going on about him trying to get him to play uh, against Navratilova a match, you know, agents yeah. were calling him to just to, just to see. But anyway, to, to get back to the original story, uh, Derek Tarr told me that he practiced in 1987 or in 1988 in Cincinnati, I believe it with, or Indianapolis with Connors and Connors okay. was scheduled to play Jim Pugh, who was top 30 or top 40 at the time. And he was a, he was a top ranked doubles player. And he said that at the end of practice, uh, the Connors asked him, who is this guy, Jim Pugh? That's who I'm playing. Who, who is this guy? I've never heard of him. There, uh, there's no way you can be a tennis player and not hear, not hear of Jim Pugh at that time. I mean, he, he's a top 40 player. He's yeah. a top doubles player in the world. You know, that's how little well, Connors followed everybody else. No, you know what? That's fascinating because when he coached Andy Roddick, in 2006, when Andy got back to the U.S. Open final, 
You know, he, he he had the same kind of philosophy, and he didn't he didn't scout Andy's opponents. It doesn't make I don't it doesn't make any difference how they play. It's what Andy does. That's what I'm here to do. That was his attitude. And similarly, Mert, when I did that '74 interview with Jimmy during the U.S. Open, he said he talked. I asked him about you know game plans for playing the likes of a Newcomer or an Ash or the top guys, and and his whole attitude was no, I don't. The essence of it was I don't change anything. I, I play I play my kind. Of, I play my tennis. Uh, I'm not worried about them. And so, you know, he did tend to oversimplify that way. And and uh, but he also I would add this, Mert, he did know, obviously, the top guys. He was resentful of the likes of Ash and Smith and those guys. And I remember saying to him at the 74 Open and this was before Arthur had won Wimbledon. Interestingly enough, it was nine months before but I said to him, look, because Arthur had said this, but alluding to his U.S. Open win of 68, he had said, as an American, I think in some ways it means more to me, even, the, even than winning Wimbledon, because I'm an American and it's my country's championship. So I said to Jimmy, how do you feel about that? Because at this point, Jimmy hasn't won the Open yet. He's in the middle, of, about to win it a week later. So I said, you know, Arthur Ashe said that about how do you feel about it? He says, well, you know, isn't that, he says, that's something, you know, I, I, Everybody always said Wimbledon was the biggest. Now I win Wimbledon this year and, and they try to tear it down. He says, I ask, ask Arthur if he'd won Wimbledon, which one would be the biggest? <laughs> so, so it was like that, that was Jimmy. That was him. And I guess in a, it, to a large extent, it explained how he how he flourished, how he succeeded. You know, he, he seemed to feed off this kind of animosity and some of his best results were as you said, 74 was his best year. And he knew he was reviled in a lot of circles in the game for many reasons, especially all these lawsuits and, and the fans hadn't taken to him yet, but boy, did he, did he ever perform amidst all that adversity? And he, he, you know what Jimmy would do too, is he would, he would, despite uh, his, his bad boy attitude, he would actually give, give points away to his opponents at, at very important stages in matches. You know, if he felt like their opponents got bad calls, the 1975 yeah. Australian Open final yeah. against John Newcomb, third yeah. set, you know, at a very uh, important point, he, he just double yeah. faults away on purpose to give uh, the point back to Newcomb. And he ends up yeah. losing this, you know, he played a role in him losing that third set. And in yeah. that, uh, in that New York Masters uh, semifinal against Vitas Gerolaitis that, uh, that Steve alluded to earlier, 7562, he yeah. gave a yeah. point away to Vitas Gerolaitis on set yeah. point, you know, so he, yeah. he would do stuff like that too, which is interesting. Yeah, you wouldn't it, it, you wouldn't think that that would have been the case given the the, the rest of the, the way that he conducted himself. But you're absolutely right. And the Newcomb one is a standout moment. Of course, he did lose that match, and and uh, it was surprising. But there was a part of him. I think there was also part of him, Mert, that didn't want the crowd. In, in, you know, he didn't want them coming down on him. He thought it was the the calls were so obvious in his mind that he didn't need in his mind. He, he's saying to himself, I don't need the extra aggravation. I don't want to be uncharitable because he did these things and they're, they're still r- remarkably remarkable in, in what they say about the a, a certain side of him as a sportsman, a part of him. And yeah, I, 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 I remember that. And, and he and Newcomb were not terribly fond of each other either. That's no. the thing. He and Vetus were buddies. He and Vetus got along great, but Newcomb and Connors did not. So that made it all the more remarkable that he would do that in Australia. Great stuff so far. You guys are more than living to the billing. So before we wrap the 70s, Murd, I want to ask you, Guillermo Vilas, if I just look at numbers, is clearly the third best player. Uh, at least from 74 onwards. He put on the numbers. He was a clay giant. 
what was his rivalry with Bjorn Borg like? And secondly, <laughs> is, is, is Vila's short change for just winning one French Open like Thomas Muster? I think Vilas had a better career than Thomas Muster. I would not, uh, I would, I think there's quite a big gap there. Um, oh, there it is. Uh, Vilas also won, you know, US Open on clay. But um, uh, I would say that good, but at, in terms of his rivalry with Bjorn Borg, it was mostly one sided. And Saki and Steve, what happens in these types of rivalries where two guys play the same type of game, more or less on one surface? And yet one does everything just a little bit better than the other. I mean, just a tad better than the other. You get these lopsided matches. And, uh, and, 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 and Borg, right. Borg would just never have trouble with Vilas. I mean, Borg, Borg uh, it's a term that uh, that's used in tennis today that I'm not really fond of. But if you want to say player A owned, player B, uh, yeah. I would go I would go with Borg owning Vilas on clay. As good as Vilas was on clay, by the way. You know, Vilas was phenomenal on clay courts, but just against Borg, it was a bad matchup for him because everything that Vilas did so well, Borg did a little bit better than him. He could hit a little bit harder, perhaps with a little bit more topspin. He had a better serve. He had better volleys. He, he, he did have a backhand slice. Vilas had a backhand slice too, but Borg's was inside out, a little bit more tricky. And uh, it, it, so therefore, when they played on clay, it produced a lot of one-sided matches. But, but Guillermo Vilas... You know, it's a whole nother case. You know, did, did he deserve to get the number one ranking or not? And uh, Steve would know much better than me in, in this case. But, you know, to, to, to most te- tennis followers back then, it feels like he did, but he didn't get it. You know, that one year he should have had it, but he didn't get it. It was a quirk in the ranking system. You know, it was not it, it would not come out every week like it does now. But uh, anyway, that's a detail that I that I don't want to get lost in. But uh, he he uh, Guillermo Vilas was a great player in the seventies. If there was no Borg, he wins five or six French Opens. Well, I I wouldn't go that far. I don't know about five <laughs> or six, but I, but I would say I would say he wins he wins multiple, more than one for sure. Yeah, it's, I I I completely get your point, Saqib. It's just that the problem with that thinking in my mind is that it's like. People say, well, what if Sampras hadn't been around? How many could Agassi have won? You've got to deal with your opposition, which is what, again, it's a separate discussion. We could have another time about how Djokovic over time was able to overcome both Federer and Nadal, who had been such, such thorns in his side for so long in the early part of his career. But I think in the case of Vilas, it was up to him. It was a bad matchup, as Merck described. And I think primarily beyond the technicalities that Mert described beautifully there, just simple problem of who was going to win that 30, 40 stroke rally three quarters of the time. And Bjorn was not going to be the first to blink. It was going to be Guillermo was going to be the first to blink. And I, and I just think it was a, yeah, it was a very unfortunate bad match, which I think extended to the other surfaces too. I feel like Bjorn could, could beat him on, on, on any kind of a court, and they, they sort of both knew it. But to get back to your point about Vilas and his impact, Saqib, yes, and Mert touched on it. He, he, he's so saddened late in his life now that he never got the number one ranking, and apparently he was really obsessed with it at times in 75, 6, and 7 when he was close and inquiring about it. And certain weeks they wouldn't put the rankings out. It's true. It's a little complicated. But the other thing, Mert, that really killed him was that in 77, and you look back, Saqib, on that year, and he won 44 matches in a row at one stage. He won the French. He wins the U.S. Open. 
it should have been like hands down number one for Velas for the year. And uh, Jimmy, but Connors was in the finals of Wimbledon. In the open had a very good week in week out record. He got it in the end. And uh, Velas, you could say he was cheated in a sense that the ATP, if they'd only had the system they, they adopted later, which put more weight and more points on the grand slam events, then I think Velas would have been okay. And I, I, I so it was, it was it really the funny part is it really came down in 77 Borg had won Wimbledon Vilas had won the Open and the French it was really more those two most of us felt they were the two best players and Connors was three but Connors ended up winning on the computer uh but Vilas deserved to be number one in the world in 77 it's too bad if only Mert if only it was more like today as as you know Mert you know, Djokovic is going to be aware and Nadal is going to be aware of what they have to do. You know, it's coming down to the wire. What do I need to do to finish off the year number one? And it's clear they're told they can go to the ATP and they say, well, if you win X, Y, and Z, and if you win this tournament, get to the final of that one and then win the last one, it won't matter what he does. You'll be number one. They know what is it, exactly what's at stake, what they have to do. Vilas didn't really know that in his time. And, and, that's why he never made it to number one, which which he was wor- he was worthy of the honor, in my view. Do you do you agree, Mert? I agree. I agree. Yeah, yeah. So, guys, if we wrap our seventies, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I thought Vilas was the third best, but I don't know anything about seventies. Who are the other? Say, if you have to name five players, Borg, Connors being top two in any order. Who are the other three men you want to add in your best five player list before we talk about the Mackenders and the Lendels of the world? Go ahead, Mark. Uh, I would go with, okay, Bork, Connors, Vilas. I would have to go with Nastasia for how many Masters tournaments he won, yeah, plus, the, yeah. plus, plus the couple of majors. Yeah. And, um, and I would probably include in there, boy, the fifth one is going to be a tough one. Um, um, hmm. I'm going to hold back for a second and let's see what, uh, what, because well, I, I, I keep, I, I keep thinking of the early seventies where you had Stan Smith, you know, Newcomb. Yeah, right. So uh, Newcomb might be, might be one. Cause he Arant- Arantes, Arantes won, I think 19 yeah. titles in the last part of the decade. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And he won the U S he won the U S open miraculously over Connors after the great comeback against Vilas. I, I think there's a lot of candidates, uh, you know, Mert, uh, uh, we Mert just alluded to Newcomb. I mean, Newcomb, as I, as I had said earlier, was generally regarded as one in the world in both 70 and 71. And then if you even look at the beginning of the computer rankings starting in 73, you know, he had, he had two years in a row at number two in the world. He was still right up there. He won the 73 Open. He won the WCT finals, you know, in that period. He had a great dominant period of 73 into 74, and then he sort of trailed off, you know. Rosewell's not out of the picture. McEnroe emerges at the end of the decade. And then there's Arthur Ashe, who right in the middle of the decade wins Wimbledon, having won the Australian at the start of the decade in 70 and many, many really good solid years over the first half. After 75, no, not so much. But uh, what he did over the first half of the decade was remarkable. And Rosewell, too, because he won those back-to-back WCT finals murder in 71 and 2, which was such a big event at that time. And the epic over labor in 72 in Dallas was one of the most heralded matches we we've ever seen. So it's, it's, it's not easy. I, I share Mert's reluctance 
to come down too hard on any one person because there were all these players were in the mix and, and such an important part of that decade. All right, so let's switch to 80s. So, Mert, no, let me bring you here. Uh, so, of course, we change date in the calendar, but does that mean 80s are a lot different than 70s? Uh, if you were to see the overall style, the power of Lendl, we'll talk about the dominance of McEnroe, the serve and volley of Edberg, how did 80s differentiate from 70s from a naked eye, if you were t- going to tell a young fan? I, I believe in terms of tennis style, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, change that much. But I do think that from, from a standpoint of, um, of, you know, like Steve mentioned about agents coming into the picture. And also you had Lendl who introduced the whole idea of off-court training and a lot of, um, uh, you know, a lot of fitness training and just turning into a physical specimen if you want to be a champion and Lendl is the one that brought that in. So yes, it does change a little bit in terms of what you do off court, you know, not just on court, but what you do off court and, and the physicality of the, of the, of, of the game started really being introduced with, uh, with Lendl and Navratilova on the women, women's side and, and, and Lendl on the men's side. So yes, I would say that uh, in terms of style, no, you still had serving volleyers. You still had baseliners, you had, but you had a, you had a more power game, and and the power game was related to uh, to you know to the physicality and the fitness training that came along with it, along with encore practice time. That, that yeah, I would I, say that I would say that's the biggest difference between eighties and seventies. That's that's you crystallized it very well, Mert. I I would just want to add one thing to what you said about Lendl with the physicality. Also, too, I also think he was the most transformational player of that era in the sense that he built his game around a pretty big serve. And then that inside out forehand, he brought it into vogue. I mean, it it became the signature shot for so many players after him. Yes. And it was based on a lot of, plus he had that great one handed backhand that he could drive so viciously down the line. So Lendl brought all this power in, but that style of his, which was very different from say McEnroe's great serve and volley game and Connor's all court game. Here was Lendl coming in with a physical, uh, uh, this brutality. His game just was an advertisement for brutality and, and yet control as well. Great control because he was a terrific clay court player. But yeah, I think he, I just think he, as a result, he was the most, he, you could argue about who was the greatest player of that decade as we just, as we were doing with the seventies, but certainly I believe that Lendl was the most impactful with, the training that that Mert mentioned, plus the way he played the game. Absolutely. I'll, I'll have that question coming up later. So, Steve, let me stay with McEnroe here. Uh, you know, when we read about him, of course, I was lucky enough to see the last few years of McEnroe. Uh, the, the words like sublime, genius, all that stuff is used. And a lot of people even say no one will even play tennis like that ever again. So how do you again tell a younger audience what McEnroe was like? Because right now he gets a lot of... Uh, uh, criticism on Twitter for his commentary that he lives in the past, but you know we shouldn't let that get in the way of the Mac into the genius, the tennis player, which doesn't get overlooked, but it's kind of like redundant. You know, we're living in the era of Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. So, how do you tell someone what McEnroe was like? You know, if you look at his peak in the early '80s, I mean, how sublime was this guy? I think fans were always tormented by clash between things they didn't like about McEnroe's behavior with the beauty of watching him play the sport. Uh, but he broke a lot of rules. He, in the sense that, you know, you looked at that stance on the serve murder and, you know, you, you coach a lot of players. I don't think you would teach many people to, 
to set up and serve that way. You wouldn't teach them to go, come up to the net and seemingly hardly bend and make shoes, volleys off your shoelaces and do them routinely. So there was a lot that was that was mind boggling about how he played. And I've never seen anything before or since quite like it. The touch, the touch was supreme up at the net. And obviously the, the one thing he didn't have that was a problem when he played the likes of Lendl and sometimes against Connors was, you know, off the ground, he, he was somewhat vulnerable. I thought, you know, he, he took the ball early, he took it on the rise, but he had, what was it Mert, more of an, a, essentially a continental forehand. Yes. So he he really, had a continental grip for, for, for yeah. almost all his shots. Yeah. Yeah. And so he couldn't really, that was not designed for power and he really had to just take the ball early and get in because if he was, if he was getting forced into some longer baseline exchanges against the likes of of Connors and definitely against Lendl, he was in trouble. Yes. But what he was doing on the serve and volley was just unprecedented. And, and I don't think we've seen anything quite like it since. So he was a really fascinating player to watch. And then of course you had all the, the, out, the, te- the temperamental outbursts were part of the package. And, and that was something John was never really able to conquer was this this volatility that would surface time and again and and exploding at officials exploding at himself etc but the player was something to behold absolutely so Mart, same question to you with a slightly different context remember when we met in pittsburgh a few years ago we over dinner discussed what talent means a lot of people say talent is john mcenroe so how do you describe talent in context of mcenroe well, in, if we're going to describe it in context of Macaro, he is the description of talent. Because uh, if you're going to describe it in his terms, it's about how you control your wrist. It's about how you, you, your your feel that that's that's so-called God's gift to you, that uh, that you can hit from any position on the court or even with your body open. Or you know, Steve just talked about his his, his unorthodox shots, and Macaro hit a lot of forehands with open stands and on even on his back foot sometimes which you would never teach to uh to to you know to tennis players but yes uh in terms of talent risk control just doing incredible things from awkward stances and uh you know hitting a serve with his back turned completely to the court you know these are these are things that that requires natural talent but you know it, it, it it's all in the eye of the beholder right i mean you know, is, is, is being a hard worker and developing your conditioning a talent also, you know, if that, if that's the perspective we're taking, Macron was not talented at all. You know, he, he, he admitted himself that his practice was to play doubles in tournaments. And, uh, and so it's, you know, it's, it's one of these things where, where in the classic sense, yes, he represents talent to the, to the top of its, um, to the top of its name, to the top of its meaning. And, um, and, and also what I would argue that, um, that uh, he's the the things that he did on the court i hardly believe that he actually went out to the court and practiced them over and over again i just think that he 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 was able to do them just from playing matches and yes that requires some risk control some natural talent and just incredible hand eye coordination so it, it, you know if you're describing talent in classic terms he's he's the epitome of uh, of the term i once heard a story at miami open through a journalist who was talking to Greg Sharko. So all three of us were talking. I was just more like listening. And he said, like, he had a story about McIndoe, like an under 16 or something, playing cards all night till four in the morning and then goes and wins four or three matches the next day in juniors. And that kind of, you know, he said that was a definition of talent. Like when the, the competition is doing other things and this guy was just, you know, 
stayed up late, plays cards and just goes out and boom, boom, boom. And, you know, like, and plus opponents didn't see the style because this wasn't a style that was replicated because my definition of talent, what I've heard is, say, we associate cliches with Marcelo Rios or Roger Federer or they make it look easy, even Fabio Fonini. McEnroe looks at ridiculously different. I would say, oh, can you play tennis like this? <laughs> you know, that's just, that's, I haven't seen a player like McEnroe. You know, the, the technique and you both have weighed on it. I think it just uh, sometimes goes missing, uh, not missing in translation, but goes missing because it's been decades and, you know, we kind of criticize everyone who's not conformed to our views. And besides his temper, I think we just simply overlook how talented this guy was. And same question to Steve. If we're talking about serve and volley, where, would you, where do you rate the McEnroe volley? Is, the, is it the best you've seen? You've seen a lot of people even before him. How do you rate that volley and where does it yeah. rank in? I'd be interested to hear Mert when he follows me. I would say, you know, he didn't volley with the, how should I put it? I mean, the decisive kind of volley of a Tony Roach backhand volley or Stefan Edberg's backhand volley or Pat Rafter's forehand volley, John Newcomb, guys that you you felt like they were going to punish you. McEnroe didn't, that's not how he did it. It was much more about, as Mert said, the feel, the touch. And I and and in the end, it was every bit as effective. You could argue more so, but I I I, I feel it was a unique net game for that reason, because he he had so much feel. And yes, he still put away the high volleys, but I think they were they to me were more decisive than he was. And yet there was nothing like the, the supreme touch that he exhibited all the time, and what he could do with the low volleys the way he could pick off the low volleys. I, I, I just think that the package was unique. Yes. And he, he, what he, what he did with the ball was uh, I had a coach from Arizona a long time ago, back in the uh, mid eighties. And he would say, you have to caress the ball like McEnroe when you're volleying. And, and, yeah. and I think that term actually describes McEnroe's volleying ability very well. Yeah, he, he, he would, he would take a ball that's coming at uh at a high velocity and he would just kind of put his racket out there and caress the ball for an, for an, for a sliding out touch angle volley. And that, that's just, that's just really hard to do. And that's, I've, I've also watched him play doubles with Patrick Macaron when Patrick was a high school player. And I can't remember who they played. I think it was Hank Fister and someone, one of the, you know, a, a, a good doubles, a good doubles team in an ATP tournament. And he just took over the court. And and Patrick McEnroe, as a high school player, was so happy that his brother was playing with him because <laughs> they actually ended up winning that tournament. And uh, yeah. I mean, that match. So, uh, yeah, McEnroe was just phenomenal at the net. Phenomenal. And let's face it. It's the reason, Saqib, why, you know, Gene Scott, the, who, the late Gene Scott, who's in the Hall of Fame, was a very fine player himself, semifinals of the U.S. Nationals in 67, eventually became tournament director and publisher of Tennis Week. He said once, my answer to the question, who's, who's the best doubles team ever? And he would say, McEnroe and anybody. And, I, and that wasn't really a joke. You felt like he could win with anybody. Had, most of it was with Peter Fleming, but he won a U.S. Open with Mark Woodford, who, of course, was a great doubles player in his own right. And you feel like and, and Michael, Wimbledon, with Michael Steak with Wimbledon, he could do it with just any, anybody. He'd elevate their doubles game just through his presence. But I do believe that the, the volley was the key to it all, of why he was arguably the greatest doubles player ever. It was, it was the volley. And then, you know, Let's go back to the tail end of the 70s uh, edition of this podcast when Murd said Jimmy Connors didn't know others. And there are also a lot of legendary McEnroe, you know, uh, 
anecdotes that I've heard over the years that are borderline insulting to players like, you know, I have more talent than him, than my little finger. My grandma would, would lose to him today. And, you know, like, and the recipients were Lendl and Gilbert and even I think Chris Lewis who lost the Wimbledon final. So talk yeah. about talk about this flavor, Steve, as, as someone who had the best seat in the house covering this man and how he was transcending the sport. I mean, does ugly American bad boy image, what was the label that used to go around describing his genius? because he couldn't keep his mouth in control. No, but I think, you know, he, he, he could get away with it because he accomplished so much. I mean, he, he, he's, uh, he usually backed it up. And I, and I, and I, I especially in 84, when granted he, he left the, the French open final, got away from him against Lendl, who played, made a great comeback from two sets down to deny John that prize. But, the tennis that he was playing that year, I, I think he kind of gave himself the right to say it. I'm not saying it wasn't insulting to the others, demeaning at times, but, but he wasn't somebody that wasn't prepared to go out and prove his point on the court. And he did it. He did it time and again. So I think that gave him a license. He was fortunate that way, but he, he kind of knew what he was doing. And when it came to insulting the likes of a Chris Lewis, well, that's just somebody he's demolishing in the Wimbledon final. Poor Chris had beaten Kevin Curran and, had a great run of the final, but he was no match for John and he got obliterated in straight sets and that kind of thing would happen. But he, I just feel like he, he you know, he would, he it would not have worked if he wasn't the great player that he was and prepared to back it up by going out on the court and, and doing his job. So Mert, again, staying more on McIndoe because you can't, you know, not talking about this guy, cannot help. So of course, his rivalry with Borg is legendary. Who is the second? Who is the second best rivalry according to you that you enjoyed most? Is it Jimmy Connors? Is it Ivan Lendl? Who do you enjoy the McEnroe matches the most with after pair, his pair up with Borg? Uh, I'm going to give a slight edge to Mac uh, to to the McEnroe Connors rivalry. However, however, I think that, that if we're comparing those two rivalries, McEnroe Connors versus McEnroe Lendl, McEnroe Lendl played some major finals of the majors like the u.s open final and the french open final that made a dent in the 1980s history bigger dents than some of their some of their matches back in the late 70s 79 and 80 for example i would go with uh, i would go with the french open final that uh, that steve just mentioned i mean that's that 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 match will never end appearing and reappearing in mcenroe's nightmares because that's a 1984 for mcenroe was was a great year and it's probably one of the best years for a single player in the history of the open era. Oh, and, yeah. and, 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 and yet, I mean, one could argue that it is the best. You know, McEnroe's 1984 is the best season that anyone has ever had. And yet he loses that tragic final to, to, to Lendl. And one thing that I would like to say about that final, we always hear McEnroe's comment commentary on it. Cause he's on TV a lot. And we hear a lot of the uh, perspective from McEnroe's side, how that match got away from him. But I would argue that uh, Lendl deserved it to win that match fully. And, and I don't believe that McEnroe's level dropped that much. I think it was Lendl who went and grit, uh, you know, just gritted out every single point with his nails and, and came back and ended up winning that match very deservedly. And, uh, and, and we, 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 don't, we don't give Lendl enough credit for coming back and winning that match. He, he raised his game. He didn't give up. And at the end of the, and at the end of the match, he's the one who took McEnroe down rather than McEnroe giving it away to Lendl. I could not could not agree more. It always bothered me that because John, understandably, was so understandably dismayed and distraught with himself to this day that he couldn't close out Yvonne, 
his level did not drop that much. You know, he won the first two, three, and two. Then Lendl wins the third set, six, four. And, 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 and John had four, two in the fourth. And Lendl came back again. And it was three all, 15, 40 in the fifth. They, they were Mackinac with a chance to break, unable to do it. So my point being, he continued to have opportunities that Lendl thwarted. And Lendl elevated his game and absolutely deserved that win. And the irony to me, Saqib is, and Mert, is that here is Lendl, who has never won a major final, who's lost four major finals. That's his breakthrough. And instead of people celebrating the moment, saying, look at that, Lendl got on the board. He's won a major at last. Good for him. It's always been discussed as a Mackinac failure instead of a Lendl triumph. Very unfair. Now, I just want to tack on one point. Slight debate with Murr, Mur, although I don't, I, I have mixed feelings about McEnroe Lendl versus McEnroe Connors. But McEnroe and Connors did play two very memorable Wimbledon finals in 82 and 84 in that decade. And Jimmy won a, a, a I wouldn't call it an epic, but a classic 6 4 in the fifth in 82. Yes. And then played maybe the greatest match of his career to just destroy Jimmy in the 84 final. And uh, it lost, I guess, four games. It was just a complete whitewash. And, and it was sublime. And then they played two fantastic U.S. Open semifinals, both yes. won McEnroe in five sets in 80 and 84. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a flip of the coin to me when I look at those two rivalries, Mert, because they both were such great, compelling rivalries that McEnroe was involved with against both Lendl and Connors. And no, I, you're, I, you're right. You're right. Definitely. I, no, I don't know if there's a. I don't know if you can can make a choice in the end. They both were so good. Steve, that brings us to the intersection of you know, 80s belongs to McIndoe and Lendl. That'll be the final question to you both. So Lendl, when he was on the Craig Shapiro podcast, he says everybody talks about the 84 French Open final, but it was the 85 U.S. Open final which kind of gave him the belief that he could do it again. So you think that's a match that changed the decade, or you still think 84 French Open final? you disagree with Ivan, is the match that kind of propelled him to future greatness like the 85 U.S. Open final? 84, you, uh, French got the monkey off Ivan's back, but he knew that he'd had a fight to the finish there, that it was it was an, an excruciatingly close contest and that he got through it, had, could be proud of himself. But I think what he means about 85, though, is that's when he convinced him. This is when he convinced himself, you know what, I really belong here at the top. I've did John beat me here in the finals last year at the U.S. Open. Now I've just beaten him in straight sets. I'm two five down in the first set and set point down, and I beat him in straight sets, six three and four. Great performance, and that's when he really believes Saqib. No, you know this is I'm at the top of the mountain, and this is where I belong. Nobody's better than I am. And so he finished that year number one. He finished eighty six number one, eighty seven number one. And although Velander came to the top in eighty eight by winning three majors, Ivan climb back to number one in 89. So I, 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 I see his point is what I'm saying. I see his point that 85 in his mind in some ways meant more. more. It reminds me a bit of Sampras talking about his first major in 90 compared to winning Wimbledon in 93. And he says in some ways it was a much bigger win what happened in 93 because he knew it was going to carry him to a chance to dominate the game for a long time to come. That's when he would because he now believed he belonged. He wasn't sure in 90 it happened so fast. So same thing here. Ivan was relieved that he had finally won a major at Roland Garros in 84, but the Open in 85 had a, a lasting significance in his mind. See, I'm going to repeat myself again by saying you had the best year in the house because you really have you know a great attachment to the sport by covering it, and then you've seen these guys go through the motions. 
So you think, how, how do I put it? Is Lender like a film, like, you know, that people appreciated, you know, after its release over the years, his uh, relation with the fans got better because American media had some, you know, very bad coverage regarding Lender the champion who nobody cared about and, you know, and whatnot because he was going against Mac and Connors. Or you think uh, Lendl was more mythical compared to Borg because of the language or he just didn't come across a friendly guy, but now we know Lendl has humor and now Lendl in his coaching avatar has gone beyond what Connors and McIndoe could have done with any of the players. So what is the Lendl stock according to you? Did it evolve over the years? Was he misunderstood? Were we giving him, we as in the media and the American fans, were we giving him the short end of the stick? So how do you see the Lendl evolution over the last 25 years? I think he was misunderstood. Uh, you, you alluded to a very important cover of Sports Illustrated, the champion nobody cares about, which is a very harsh way to put it. And unfair, really. But it was unfortunately reinforced, Mert, by the likes of uh, by Jimmy and John. Jimmy and John didn't like each other. But if there's one thing they had in common, and aside from liking Bjorn, it was disliking Yvonne. And so they kind of ganged up on him often, said they were always making disparaging comments about Lendl. And, and Lendl didn't, Lendl let it roll off him, at least on the surface he did. He just went about it. He just was a, the ultimate professional going out and trying to do his job. But I think it was really an unfair way to portray him. You, you touched on something else important, Saqib. He always had a great sense of humor. And, and unfortunately, the public didn't see him interviewed enough, nor did they get it a, a, as large a sense as they should have of his deep intelligence, you know, both about tennis and life. He's a very smart guy. And I think that would have come through more. It's too bad. But he he wasn't going to show that humor in a post-match interview very often, quick interview out on the court or even necessarily in the press interview afterwards. So, he, yes, it gets back to your central point, a largely misunderstood man who was definitely disparaged by his two prominent American rivals. Uh, so that didn't help in terms of media portrayal of Lendl or public perception of Lendl. So, Mert, we talked about this in the past, uh, I think on another podcast, but now Steve's company, I think it's worth revisiting. Is Ivan Lendl a better hard court player or a better clay court player? I know you said clay, I said hard. So let's revisit this. And he won a staggering 83 titles in the 80s. So it's clearly, I think in my view, he's a player of the decade, but which is his uh, strongest surface? Is it hard courts or clay courts? I, I'm only going with clay, and Saki. We've had this discussion before. I'm only going with clay because he because he because he he got his his greater accomplishments early on clay. He was first a, he was first at his best on clay, and then he became a he became an ex- excellent hardcore player. And, and by the end of his. Uh, career you could very well make the argument that he was he was at his best on hard courts i would not i would i would not uh, argue against that but if you but 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 if the question is what was he first and foremost i would go with clay courts first steve i'm gonna come down i i i don't usually do this i'm coming down somewhere in the middle initially he was a better clay court player but i think from 1980 Certainly from 85 on, I, I, I preferred him on the hard courts. And we saw him reach eight, a record eight U.S. Open finals in a row, uh, which, which certainly points, uh, Saqib, to your claim of him being player of the decade. I think that would be the main reason he would wear that. I would, I would have no argument against that. You're, still, yeah. I would, uh, you are exactly right. I mean, the, yeah. by the end of his career, it's for sure. Looking back, yeah. you know. Yeah. 
Oh, no, I see your point about early, though, too, because he was groomed on clay. And he, and in early in his career, he loved it more. And he kind of liked having a little more time to set things up. And then and then he evolved. But I do think that 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 achievement at the Open was just phenomenal. I, it's unfortunate for Ivan that he lost five of the eight finals. He won three in the middle of that phase in 85, six and seven. But Connors beat him in those back to back 82 and 83 finals. He lost that heartbreaker to Mats in 88 in five sets. And then he lost to Becker in 89, who at that point was really one of his toughest rivals. And he, Boris was starting to overpower Yvonne, which was not easy to do. But uh, it, it was a great achievement to be in those yeah. finals. Uh, made, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I was, I was, I was also going made, to add. Sorry, go ahead. You, you go ahead. No, no, I was just going to add that. I also think that uh, Lendl, has missed some opportunities as great as he was, you know, he was eight and 11 in major finals. And just like, just like today, you know, Federer gets criticized for, for losing so many matches in the semifinals and finals of majors from match point up. Uh, Okay. Lendl didn't lose many matches from match point up, but there were some finals that he went into as clear favorite to win. And, and he didn't, he didn't capitalize on those. He also lost a, you know, in, in 1987 and 88 Australian Open semifinals, he lost to Pat Cash in the night, you know, twice. Yeah. Uh, 1987 yeah. Wimbledon final, he lost to, um, he lost to um, Cash again. And yeah. you know, that yeah. 1983 final that uh, Steve just mentioned, you know, he went into that as the clear favorite and he loses to Connors. And even, even in 1982, the year that Wielander came out of nowhere to win the French Open, Lendl went into that 1982 French Open as the clear favorite to win the tournament. And he ends up losing in a shocker from two sets up to, to Wielander when Wielander was 18 years old. So, you know, he, Lendl did miss some opportunities. I mean, if he, if he capitalized on those opportunities, we'd be talking with him in the discussion in the greatest of all time players. And Lendl is Yeah, we guy. would, but the point about that, Sakibi, I, I, I think that's all very true. And it, you have to weigh that in when we analyze Lendl, that he wasn't the greatest big match player. He did improve because he lost those first four and he got better as time went on. But all of the matches that, that, Mer, that Mert is alluding to, and some of those obviously are semifinals too. You know, there's, there's no doubt that there were many majors he was seemingly within striking distance of winning that he was unable to secure for whatever the reasons. Uh, but I still think, you know, that he ended up with eight, having lost the first four. It, it was still a very distinguished career. Of course. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Much to lament. But you, had he been a slightly better big match player, Mert, we certainly would have seen him go into the double digits in, in majors. Yes. And, and I do agree with with both of you that that 80s belong. I mean, I would put him on top of the 80s also. Yeah. Yeah. And, then, and I would just like to add one point, because this is one player I can at least sit down with you both and give my views as well. Uh, and I think, uh, Murdy, you're right. He had his clay dominance early. But I think the most staggering fact is, I think after beating Perez Roldan in the 88 Rome final, he never wins a big clay title. Loses to Chang in 89, loses to Jonas Swenson in 88, and then skips French Open, and then is not even a, he becomes a pale shadow of himself on clay. But on hard courts, he was still making finals in Australia yeah, in 91. Yes. US yeah. Open, he lost to Edberg in the 92 quarters, which a match he should have won, I think. You know, he had, you know, a great look in that match. But I think as years went on, he was a force indoors and force in hard courts. And his clay participation, maybe by choice, 
because Absolutely. he focused on Wimbledon, took a back seat, and the numbers are slightly lopsided, even though it's still excellent in a career that's spanning like you know 14 15 years so that's no, no, absolutely. my only I mean, let, let, let me let me underline one more time the, you know I'm, I'm looking at Alex from from the perspective of what was he first and foremost at the beginning initially i think steve verbalized it very well a lot more eloquently than i could he said when he said initially he was a he was a clay court player yes so so i guess that's that's what i was looking at when i said his his favorite surfers was clay in the sense that that's what he grew up on and that's what that's where he became the best first before evolving into an all, you know, all, all surface player. Just we have champions today too, who first excelled on one surface and then eventually evolved into a, a very good player on all surfaces. But, uh, but I would, you know, I would say that early in his career and uh, it, you know, what was he good? What what's on, on what surface was he good? First and foremost, I would go with clay, but by the end of this, by the end of his career, I completely agree with you guys. Looking back at his career overall, he, he has his biggest accomplishments on hard courts. Yes. Okay. So we kind of are in agreement that statistically the decade belongs to Lendl. You know, McEnroe doesn't win a title in 87, which is kind of bizarre. So Steve, one more thing on this, and then we'll discuss a few other plays and wrap it up in 10 minutes. I know Mert has an early start. So you think McEnroe's sabbatical also has to be taken into account or, you know, we are not going to factor off-court stuff like that. And he was never the same guy after that. He took he took that sabbatical in 85, I believe, or 86. Yeah, forgive me. Just make a quick detour back to Lendl again to say that the parallel that we talk about, Bjorn not winning the U.S. Open, how sad that was that four opportunities, it never happened. I feel the same way about Lendl and Wimbledon. I think he was worthy of one Wimbledon and, and, and Mert got to the one that he should have won. And that to me is taking nothing away from Pat Cash, but... That's the one I think he didn't do himself justice. And I think it happened because he was too rigid in his approach. He wanted to serve in volley every point. You know, he he really got into that pattern. And he and Tony Roach were convinced that was the only way for him to win Wimbledon. And granted, it's hard to win Wimbledon staying back, although we finally saw it with Agassi in 92. And we saw Courier get to the final and things changed. But my point being, I think if Lendl had been a little more flexible, he might have won uh, he at Wimbledon, and it would have been nice to have him crown his career and have have them all. Now to McEnroe, you're the sabbatical. I think we have to weigh it in. It's it's there's no ignoring it happened. I think there was no getting around the fact that he felt he needed the time off. He'd lost to Brad Gilbert at the Masters at the end of the '85 season, Jan '86 in the Garden, and then that just he just was so disgusted with losing to Gilbert that and he'd had it and he needed a break, but. The fact remains that I wonder if he'd had it to all do over again if he wouldn't have done it because he was never the same. He made a resurgence in 89 back into the top four and had a great WCT finals in Dallas that he won and he beat Lendl and he had some nice results in that period of 89 and semis to Wimbledon had a good Wimbledon loss to Edberg, but he was never the same over overwhelmingly uh, potent John McEnroe in terms of a presence and an ability to compete for majors. And I wonder, had he not taken the break, if that would have been different, whether John could have stayed up there longer, because let's face it. I mean, there wasn't a terrible 85 and he lost that final to, to Yvonne at the open. And one would have thought that there was, were many more majors to come, but in fact, there were, there were none. And uh, that I don't think that should happen to somebody in his mid twenties, but it did happen to John McEnroe. He never played a final again, I think. Yeah, that's true. Come to think of it, yeah, the semi at Wimbledon was the best that he did. Yeah, that Wimbledon semi. 
So these are two leading candidates. I have some numbers for both of you guys uh, for the titles in 80s. So this is surprising even to me. Connors won 30 titles in the decade of 80s. Borg, 12. Jose Leclerc, 21. Mats Villander, 31. Stefan Edberg, 20. Boris Becker, 24. Again, not to you know influence your judgment. So who is the third name that appears when you think of 80s on the men's side? Well, for me, it would be, I, I suppose it would be Becker because he won, you know, to becoming the youngest Wimbledon champion ever in 85 at 17, defends the title the next year, comes back and wins a third in 89 when he also won the U.S. Open alongside it. So I, Becker would be my choice because I think through that second half of the 80s, he was a great big match player and a dominant force in his own way. Might have been able to do even a bit better than he did, but those successes especially the three at Wimbledon combined with the one at the Open, I, I, I would give the nod to him. As much as I like this answer, thank you, Steve. I'm a huge Becker fan. But how do you put someone with four majors over someone like Wielander who had seven? Just, you know, even though I totally, you know, love this, you know. Yeah. Just to be I mean, fair to Matt. There's a good argument for Matt's, and Matt's won three in one year, and Matt's was more consistent. I guess in my mind, you know, yes, the titles are there for Matt's and the consistency, and he finally, unfortunately for him, after 88, he was never the same again either. But it was a great decade, and no getting around that. And phenomenal clay court player who, and and sort of a crowning moment in many ways was when winning that U.S. Open in 88 over Lendl. But I don't know. I guess in my mind, it's that Becker at his best. He, 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 maybe he impressed me more with what he did uh, on those stages at Wimbledon and the U.S., particularly Wimbledon. Makes and that's two of us. And that's one that Max never was able to win. So I, I, I'm giving it to Becker despite the, the gap in titles. And, and with all due deference to Max Wielander, I think the world of Max in terms of what he got, what he achieved in his career. But I guess I'm saying, Becker at his best, and considering the importance of Wimbledon, I'm giving it to him. Absolutely. Mert, how do you see Becker's rise and Willander and Edberg also in play? Is this the most competitive decade where like multiple players winning multiple majors and competing with each other for a good six, seven years? Of course, age gap is there for Becker and Connors, but they all kind of overlapped and ATP was full of personalities and contrasting styles, as far as I see. Yes, I would, I would say that late 80s, especially when you get to 1987, 1988, 1990 even. I know we're not talking about 90s, but those, those four or five <laughs> years right there, I would argue that that's the toughest, uh, toughest top 50 in ATP. You see, what, one of the misconceptions is that when we're talking about the toughest eras, and I know it's all subjective, and I know it's all uh, uh, you know, judgmental, so you know, no, it's not an exact science, but when people talk about the toughest era, they always t- seem to take into account the top three, top five, and not look beyond. And I think that if you look at a top 10, top 20, or even top 50, which I've looked at for, for years now, because this is a topic that fascinates me. And I would say that the 1988, 1989, and 1990 top 50 is by far the toughest top 50 of any era. And and I would and I would argue that when you win a major or a big tournament, you don't you don't just beat a great player in the semis or the finals to win it. You have to beat incredible players in the early rounds also. And and that that would happen in 1988, 89, and 90. I mean, you would have you would have guys like Goran Ivanisevic, for example, who was you know most of the time 
who was maybe outside top 10 or even number 17 or 18. And yet this, here's a guy that you could possibly play in the fourth round of a major. And, and I just think that that's that era right there outside the, you know, Becker, Landel, Willander, and then and those names, McEnroe, even the supporting cast around them. And then when I say supporting cast, I don't mean the next four or five guys like we talked about in, in the 70s or the next seven guys. I mean the next 20 guys. And I would argue that that's the toughest, uh, uh, that's the toughest era for me. Agassi was there and, too. Agassi, was Agassi, there. I, I would, I would, I would, I would advise someone who claims that the toughest era was a, at a certain year to look at 1989's year end top 30 and argue with me that, uh, that they can find a tougher top 30 than that. I, I, I don't think anything else comes close. So Mar, let me stay with your thought on that. So was there also like different styles in op- you know, operation there? There were a bunch of baseliners then there were, you know, like established players like Lendl, Willander, Becker, Edberg, and the rise of Agassi. There was an Andre Lacanth who still hadn't faded away. So were there also like different styles and variety that went on at, in those, you know, those group of thirty men that you talk about? Yes, I think you just you just mentioned the, a, a bunch of variety in the very names that you just uh, cited right there. There's a, there's a huge uh, variety of game. It was it was a lot of pleasure to watch. And, and one thing about, uh, about Boris Becker that I would like to add is, at least from a European perspective, th- there was a big gap or big hole in European tennis of German tennis players. You know, the, 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 the Italians had their hero with Panetta. Uh, Spanish had their, had, had, you know, had their players in Manuel Orantes, for example. French had Yannick Noah. And Germans had nobody, you know, to, to vie for the top. And there comes Boris Becker, boom, boom. And, and it just opened up a whole uh, uh, generation of players who wanted to be like Boris Becker. It boomed tennis in Germany, but it also brought that style, that big serve, hard-hitting forehand, just, you know, crushing the ball. And, 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 and there was a slew of junior players or young players in Europe, in the satellites, et cetera, who all wanted to be like Becker, you know, who all wanted to play like him. It was, it, it was just a really charismatic character figure in, in, in tennis in the mid 80s when he first came out. Steve, how did the press room respond to Becker, especially the English speaking one, because he was a phenomenon, same initials as Bjorn Borg, but a totally different personality. So what do you remember of those years and how did he get warmed up with you guys, you know, in the same business as press and players? Yeah, maybe that was, maybe that's no accident that they had the same initials. I hadn't even, I hadn't thought about that till you mentioned it. Oh, I think there was great excitement. I, I remember, what year was this? Sometime in the, in, it, 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 this was around 89 in that period. I went on a, an, a, a talk show with Arthur Ashe and the host asked us at the end, you know, who's the most important player in tennis right now? And one of our fellow panelists said, oh, Andre Agassi. And I said, no, I don't think it's Agassi. I think it's Boris Becker. Because in some ways he's larger than the game he plays, and and I I think and and Arthur agreed with me. I was I didn't know where he was going to come down. There'd been one vote for Agassi, one for Becker, and he came, he agreed with me. And I just feel like the press was was fascinated by him because he was very he made very colorful comments to keep in the press conferences. Not nothing disparaging. He just was an interesting guy uh, in the way he talked about the game and how he presented himself, especially the younger Becker was very appealing, I think, coming along like that and remarkably mature at 17, giving these press conferences at Wimbledon in 85. 
And I will say that one of the great uh, joys of my career early on, you, you, we, we get a lot of Mert, we get a lot of calls wrong. As you know, in this business, we make predictions all the time. And sometimes we fall on our face. It's inevitable. But I saw Becker at the Orange Bowl when he was 15. And I, and I wrote this piece for World Tennis, and I was, and I was lauding him, you know, as someone who was going to one day win a, was going to win a major. And then we did our picks at World Tennis early in 85, about two months before women. We actually had to get these in by, I think, April, by mid-April, end of April. And we pick our final four, who were going to be the semifinals at Wimbledon and the champion. And I had him in my semifinal. I had him in the semifinals because I was that convinced of his greatness on fast courts. And I, I don't think I've ever seen somebody as a young player that I was more convinced about than Becker. All I would add to that, and I don't know how Mert feels, is we can talk about Lendl and what he might have done. But I really believe that Boris should not have ended his career with three Wimbledons two Australians and the U.S. with a total of six majors. I think he could have accomplished more, but he became a very complicated personality and he's very high strung. And there may be probably many reasons why he did not uh, fulfill more of his potential. But in my mind, he probably should have been a bigger winner than he was. How do you feel about that, Mert? No, I agree. I agree with you. He's, he's, he had some strokes that you couldn't really um, uh, second. Uh, and uh well, for starters, he did have some some injury problems a little bit yes. later in his career, yeah. so yeah. that that's that that held him back a little bit. And uh, you know, he had a big wrist problem, if I remember correctly. And yeah. uh, but but what what he would also do is he he counted a lot on his serve, and when his serve wasn't on, he 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 had he had trouble with it. And you know, it's when you play a major, you have to play five sets for seven matches. And if you, if you rely so much on one weapon, that has to work very well for you. And it's hard to get that working, you know, 10, 12 majors in a row for seven matches. And I think yeah. that held him, that held him back a little bit. The fact that his game wasn't perhaps as versatile or, or as, uh, as complete all around as some of the players around him were, I think that may have held him back, but, uh, but I would, I, I would for sure agree with you that, uh, he should have had more than what he has in his, uh, in his CV right now. Yes. Yeah. I would like, example, I would like to... example, Sakeep, let me just throw this in quickly. I don't want to lose this thought, but, uh, he plays Edberg three years in a row in the Wimbledon finals. You know, he had a dominant career record over, it was along the lines of 25, 10 over or step on head to head, big edge. And yet he loses two of the three Wimbledon finals from 88 to 90. He only won the second one, the middle one of the three. And then he loses to Steak in the 91 final. I just feel like there were a bunch more Wimbledons there. There were two or three more for sure that he could have, could have had, could have capitalized on. And I just look at those moments in a similar way, Mert, the way you're looking at some of those Lendl losses as ones that I can't fully explain in, in my mind. And I would just like to add to both what you said. I 100% agree. I, nothing to take away from Edberg and Courier. I still think before the ascent of Sampras, it was Becker's claim to be the best player. I remember reading a lot of these articles. Of course, I'm a biased Becker fan. People would write, what's wrong with Becker? Why is he playing from the baseline? The years 91 and 92 was when he went in wilderness. I remember 91, like the fitness issues. He looked awesomely in good form coming to the Open, beating David Payne and someone else in two rounds. And then he pulled a thigh injury against Sasha Volkov. 
on the Labor Day weekend. And he, and I, as a teenager, that's the first year we got cable. I was, a, I went to my cousin's house, stayed up till one in the morning and Becker's limping. And I'd say, come on. And then Courier and Edberg play the U.S. Open final. And like Federer and Nadal never playing in U.S. Open, Becker Edberg also never playing in a hardcourt major was something that I always wanted because 25-10 is too big a lead. I still think that Wimbledon final 2-1 is like, you know, 3-1 up in the fifth set is something, you know, yeah. Yeah. You, you, you know, you live with. But that rivalry never really got the full credit it deserved because of Becker being inconsistent and also injury prone. Had he approached his rest of his career like he did at Wimbledon or the indoor season, we would have seen more dominance. But I think he rem- remains one of the biggest, big if players, you know, 49 titles and six majors, like Steve said. It should be in the neighborhood of eight or nine majors at least. But again, oh, yeah. Edberg, Edberg is a class act. I don't want to piss my Edberg friends oh, off. Oh, no, no. <laughs> I, I totally agree with you. I don't, I don't want to diminish Stefan in any way. He was a beautiful player. I'm just saying head-to-head, Boris was better, and it should have been reflected as it was in the overall head-to-head. We should have seen that reflected and that he should have at least been able to win two of those three, particularly the 90 comeback. To come from two sets down where he was getting obliterated and be up 3-1 in the fifth and have a forehand volley that he should have made to go up 4-1. I mean, you know, it, it, Boris was, I'm sure he always lamented that loss. But I, another, I think I think another, you're very good. Another odd loss is the 92 third round to, you, uh, to John McEnroe in Melbourne, who he had yeah. an 8-2 winning record. So that loss yeah. came from nowhere. So, yeah. you know, like Becker's career is like very questionable, especially I think, Mert, we can agree till Rafa Nadal came along. Becker was probably the best number two player in the world who played some of his best tennis before becoming number one. But I think <laughs> 91 till 93 is where the lost opportunity is, according to me, because after that, Sampras took over and Becker with Boletary made some comeback. But he was always going to be the third fiddle after Sampras and Agassi, who were playing a notch above him. So I think that's uh, my two cents. And Mert, I have to let you go now, but... Give two, two minutes on Edberg and Villander. We cannot shortchain this 80s uh, conversation without the two Swedes. So who do you rate higher? So I, I would For the 80s, if we're talking about the 80s, I would have to rate Willander higher. He's, he he won more he won more more majors he he was but you know again the, the, we would have to extend it beyond the 80s as a decade or as a 10 year span in that conversation edberg may actually come ahead but if we're going to stick with just the 80s i would have to go with matt swilander for for his accomplishments and and but one thing i would like to say about those two guys is that there were other swedes who played like matt swilander no other swede played like stefan edberg so he was he was completely you know the way we talked about Connors being an outsider and that's the title of his book by the way, but uh, but Edberg was an outsider to Swedish tennis in the in in his style of tennis back then. You had you had a bunch of uh, baseliners, Willander, Simonsson, uh, you know, Nyström, Sundström. They were all baseliners, two two handed topspin. All it's almost like they all came out of the same machine. But, uh, it, well, Andres Yarit was actually an attacker himself. So he was an exception to, but Stefan Edberg was a serve and volleyer from the very beginning. And the, and the weird thing about Stefan Edberg is he had a two-handed backhand as a youngster. And he switched to a one-handed backhand in his very early years. And, uh, and, and, and yet that's it, that, that was his better shot by far. His backhand was a lot better than his forehand. And, uh, and, he, and he was a serving volleyer. I've never seen someone get to the net as quick as Edberg. You know, we just talked about how hard Gerolaitis was to pass at the net and how fast he was. Edberg's three steps, first three steps to the net following his serve 
were incredibly fast. He was all he was always inside the service line by the time the first volley came around. That is very hard to do, or the, yeah, the, the day in and day out. But what Mert, what you're saying, I I I totally agree with that. I remember he once got footfall against Aaron Crickstein at the Open 25 times. And they asked him about it afterwards. And he said, well, it's very important to me to get to that net really quickly for my first volley. So I'm going to get as close to the line as I can, as I possibly can. It amused me yes. because I thought, how much could that half an inch? I suppose it could make a difference. But he was absolutely astonishing with that, that alacrity. Because his serve wasn't that good. His serve was not really, no, his no, serve was not no, even but, close to Becker's serve. No, so, not even close. But again, that did help in terms of closing in for the first volley. Definitely. Time, he, you know, and he was a beautiful volley, particularly that backhand volley was just. So, a yeah. And, you know, we job. talked about how, how great McEnroe's volleys are. And uh, I would have to rate Edberg's right up there. Maybe yeah. maybe just just a tad behind, but right up there with McEnroe. And one of the best volleyers in the open era, without a doubt. So yeah, Mark, did I, Edberg's forehand, did a top player ever have a, had a weaker shot? I mean, I'm a novice. <laughs> When it comes well, to judging technique, but well, that forehand looked like very weak. Well, you should have seen Jimmy Arias' backhand or Alberto Barisategui's <laughs> backhand. Yes, you know, but that, hold on, you know. hold Barisategui <laughs> or Arias, but 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 in but but Sakib is talking about top of the line. Right, right. <laughs> no, All right so, okay, so make it make it a. But uh, you know what? A quick comment on that. Lendl, I remember Lendl telling me that, that he thought that Stefan was so good at covering up that weakness. Because he'd come in from very, very deep positions. He'd think that he could pin Stefan in his forehand corner and exploit that. But then the next thing he knew, he bent, uh, Stefan was taking the ball early and just chipping and coming in down the line. And so it was very hard to expose what was clearly a, a, a much weaker wing on the forehand side for, for Stefan. At the same time, I would say that uh, Ivan Lendl would comfortably speak about that because he's he's the one who exploited it in the 1990 Australian Open final when when he dragged the Edberg into these long rallies and Edberg oh, yeah, faulty yeah. on his forehand and he retired at, you know before the end of yeah, that match but but that's how he turned that match around yeah no I agree and, and 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 there were times he just he just was and I don't think he was saying that he couldn't do that he said it right was right difficult to accomplish you're right about that Australian final and on that occasion it, he pulled it off <laughs> so, Mert, again, Lendell Edberg, you know, two of the prime athletes of the 80s, and I'll pick Becker behind just because of footwork. Who had the best footwork if you have to choose between Ivan Lendl and Stefan Edberg? Between Ivan Lendl and Stefan Edberg, you're talking about two different types of players. I would have to go, I would, I'm going to go with Lendl because he covered the court so well and, he, and he, he had long strides, but at the same time, he would move around the ball really quickly to hit his baseline strokes. But again, if you, you know, if, if we're talking on terms of serve and volleying and getting to the net, because moving forward quickly is just as important as moving sideways, especially if you're counting on your net game. I've never seen someone faster than Edberg in, in terms of moving up, you know, along with Gerolitis probably is another one, Edberg. And, you know, we could move, we could add a couple of more names to it, but no overall footwork and physical conditioning and agility in the eighties, Ivan Lendl was tops for me. All right. That makes my day. I mean, you guys praising Lendl and Becker, two of my you know, absolute one, favorites. One guy, <laughs> one guy that if we're going to talk foot speed, just pure foot speed, we would have to include Michael Chang in there. He did, he, 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 was, he did win 1989 uh, French Open. This guy was lightning fast, lightning fast. 
Yeah, no, Michael was phenomenal with the speed and also with the the brain power and the, what he did to get inside Yvonne's head that day, you know, with the, the underhanded serve and yeah. moving in virtually about two steps behind the service line to get Lendl to double fall. But I will say this, let's add that to the list of, so we say, inexplicable Yvonne Lendl losses or, or yes. regrettable because Michael was cramping so badly. I never understood why Yvonne wasn't able to just start using, playing some short angles and moving him. Or he just seemed frozen. He seemed like uh, uh, he, did, he just simply didn't know what to do in Steve, that situation. That, that's the same thing that happened to him against Willander in 1982. He, you know, he just, he just got yeah. frozen after winning the yeah. first two sets. You know, it's... Yeah, yeah. So with you both here, again, Lendl keeps coming up. So I still think the Chang match, like the McEnroe, French Open final is very well documented. And of course, a two sets to love lead against a teenager. But I still want to hear about the 88 quarterfinal against Jonas Svensson when Lendl loses three straight <laughs> sets. That's the French Open he should have won. And I probably would ask Ivan Lendl this if you ever speak to him. That's the year I want to focus on. What went on in that match? Nobody talks about that match. He could have won his fourth French. Yeah, Second, I don't... I'm, I'm, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of the same thing. I don't remember that match. That's that's a match that uh, I watched at the that time. That proves my I, point. I, I, Nobody you know, talks yeah, about it. <laughs> I, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I've forgotten. And there's not many I forget, but I forgot. I don't remember much about that match either. Yeah. All I can say is by that stage, we're getting to that period where Lendl is no longer the, the same clay court player he had once been. No, but that's the, the year before the Chang match. That's 88. He yeah, I know. Even, yeah, I think in 88, he was already in. A, I think after 87, I would say there was there was a, a change mm. there on clay in my in my mind. But because and, and also I suspect there must have been might have been some kind of an injury that we didn't know about for, to have a scoreline like that. OK, guys, this is I think the perfect note to end this 80s ending with Ivan Lendl not being the same player. I think, Steve, you hit something very poignant there. Unless you both have a parting comment, I think I can thank you for both for this amazing two hour, 20 minutes. I have cherished every minute of it. I'll enjoy it even more when I listen to it while editing. So any parting thoughts before we wrap this up? No, I would just like to thank Steve for coming. And this was a great opportunity for me. I I could sit down with Steve and talk for hours and hours. So uh, Steve, thank you very much for joining us. And Sakib, thank you very much for hosting the both of us for and talk about an era that probably needs 10 hours to, to, to get in, to get into the yeah. granular details, but, uh, but you, you directed the conversation very well. And I thank you for that. Yeah. I want to thank both of you because it's always stimulating. Sagi Merton, I've had many a discussion in press facilities at Roland Garros and elsewhere, but particularly I remember talks in at Roland Garros and it's always so stimulating. And this was a great forum and you were an excellent host and I thank you for having us both on. And, and I look forward to coming back at some point in the future. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I'm already planting a 90s conversation because there's some unfinished business when Mert is back on a familiar uh, time zone. So we don't have to torture him past midnight. Uh, yeah, listeners, he's doing this at like 12.27 a.m. in Turkey time. So, mm-hmm. you know, he gets brownie points. But the lunch <laughs> is on me next time you're in U.S. And thanks, Steve. Always an honor. Always so much learning points and your memory is second to none how you come up with these anecdotes like it happened like what two years ago is just incredible i'll enjoy listening to it more because i don't have to ask a question while i'm listening to it while editing and hopefully the listeners take away leaps and bounds you know of 70s and 80s and we will try to do a 90s episode i promise 
when we have a more conducive time zone. Thank you both very much. I enjoyed every minute of it. <laughs>